So, so he reached over, grabbed me by the back of the neck and said, if, if you don't cut that out, I'll send you home in an ambulance. To which I have to say, my, my first mental response was, that doesn't even make sense. You don't go home in an ambulance. But... The, but the, <laughs> But, but, but why did you, why say, did that? you say that? You should have said why that. Why did you say that? <sighs> All right, man, shake the jitters out. Shake the jitters out. I'm just, Are we I rolling? Feel, Are we good? I feel thick. You feel thick because you I just, just had ate a, 40 pounds I had of food. a giant bowl of food. You know how much food you have to eat when you're boxing and training four hours a day? How much? A metric ton? At least 10 pounds. Bro, I lost seven pounds of my sleep last night. What? I lost seven pounds of my sleep how? last night. How does that work? I don't yeah, know. I don't believe Water? Did you go to bed? Mike and Spencer actually skipped lunch yeah. because of the weight of today's guest. True. That's they enough They don't, don't want to burp. I don't want any more weight. They don't want to fart. That's yeah. That's true. It's true. Welcome back to Impulsive, by the way, the number one podcast in the world. Thank you guys for listening, watching, viewing, subscribing. If you're not subscribed, hit that button for me. How we feeling? We all good. Feeling great, Besides man. feeling a little bloated now. I yeah. feel good. I, I, I'm a little, I'm fired up, dude. Like not fired up, but I'm excited. Yeah. I'm amped up for this guest. It, yeah. Like I think. Uh, You're wearing a very appropriate shirt, by the way. Well, I don't know. Ooh. I don't want it to mislead anyone, but I want America to it's, dream, Well, dude. it's a little, it's, it's, it's incredible. Is it politically charged? Though? Are you trying to send a message? Not really. I, I just, I like the idea of uh, people being creative and dreaming, you know? Do you, Damn. Do you think. Ever do since you, you got sober, man, he's just prophetic. Mike's yeah. doing a lot of, lot of great things. Yeah. You know? Um, do you think we're capable of, of handling the weight of today's guests? Do you think like, cause I know that's going to be some, there's going to be some comments like I'm going to take my gum out for this one, stick it under the counter. There you go. I, I, I think, I think we 100% are, Absolutely. are ready for it. Okay. I think, uh, people are always going to have things to say and try to box you in, but we've, we've had a hundred and what, 19 episodes under our belt now included yeah. the likes of Alex Jones and, and a number of other, uh, hard to handle guests. Mm-hmm. I mean, some would call this guy the the Grim Reaper of the debate world, <laughs> one of the I, horsemen of the apocalypse. Think, All right, listen, I, I just made those up. Bill, he's never been called that, okay? But that said, you know, yeah. it carries a similar weight. Yeah, I think we bring him <laughs> on right away. Uh, he's one of the most accomplished political personalities in the world today. He hosts the insanely popular self-titled live radio show, and he's the co-founder of The Daily Wire. His 10th book, The Right Side of History, How Reason and Moral Purpose Made the West Great, is out now. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Ben Shapiro. Woo! And, and and by the way, my producer Dylan put in bold, so I think he wants me to say this. Happy to have you here. <laughs> As if I'm not. I'm a Ben Shapiro fan. Bold and caps. Ooh, it's, wow. it's it's at the bottom. Happy to have you here, Ben. Which we are. That's a little aggressive. Which we are. Well, I- Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think he goes, he, before he came on, he goes, by the way, we're Ben Shapiro fans. We're friendly and we're going to treat him like that. And like, I told you that. Like, when I first met you at your office, you remember what I said? Of course, it's it's embedded in my brain. What I say? You called me a mother effing G. He's a motherfucking G. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, Benjamin, I'm like, yeah, you're a motherfucking G, dude. Yeah, me and Ben but go way back. There's probably reason for for not only our side but his side to ensure that. Have you had shows that you've gone on that have tried very hard to make it a not so happy setting for you? 
I mean, oh, yeah, yeah sure. of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you always have to be a little bit wary of of the people who are interviewing you, or at least know enough about them that you don't get sandbagged. I mean, that's happened to me too. So, how no. do you know that's not going to happen here? <laughs> I have no idea, man. I have no idea. What are your expectations? Do you have any? No, right. I've seen enough of you to know not to have any expectations. <laughs> that's, 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 that's the wisest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, all right, yo, normally we, we do a pretty uh, free flow style show. And uh, with you, I wanted to kind of get a little more specific. So I want to start off right away with a, a question that might take up the whole episode, might not. But okay, in today's society, it's 2019, your opinion, what are the three most pressing obstacles that we face as Americans? Okay, well, I think the number one, issue that comes to mind is the inability to have conversations. We're, we're now living in a, in a world where even the willingness to have conversations is seen as something bad. Well, right. When you live in a democratic republic where we're all supposed to vote based on the outcomes of those discussions, if you aren't even willing to sit down with somebody on the other side of the aisle and have a conversation, it makes it impossible for you to vote in an informed way. Mm. It makes it impossible for you to see your neighbor as somebody who's not a jerk. Mm. It makes it impossible for you to even have the social fabric necessary to serve as the root of a civilization. And you see this, I mean, there was an, there was an unbelievable article in the New York Times, this op-ed in the New York Times, maybe three, four days ago, in which they name-checked me, they name-checked a bunch of other people who are in the so-called intellectual dark web, and they said, all these people keep asking for discussion and debate just like slaveholders would. And I was like, whoa! I'm pretty sure that the thing that the slaveholders did wrong was the owning of the slaves, you know, like the, the raping and the, and the beating and yeah. like the owning of humans, like yeah. that, that was yeah. probably the problem. Me saying I want a discussion is actually not like mm. that. But the goal for a lot of folks right now is shut down the conversation, make it so that people can't talk with you, and then excise people from public life and make it impossible for them to work. Mm. And look, I'm lucky. I, I get to talk for a living and I make a good living doing it. But there are a lot of people out there who don't have the option of having a microphone in their face saying their opinion. And they're just trying to get through the day. And they're afraid that if they say something at work, people are going to come down on them, destroy their lives, yep. try and have them fired. That's really not good for the country. We at least have to see each other as common, as friends, right? We have to see each other as, as, as Americans if we want to have those conversations. So to me, and it's happening on the right and the left. I think right now it's happening more on, on the political left than the political right um, because of the, the sort of woke nature of politics and the new rules that are constantly changing. And you cross a line you didn't even know was there. And suddenly something you said back in 2010, if you're Kevin Hart, yeah. means you lose a job at the Oscars, yep. Yep. right? And th this is how I end up on the, the same side as Dave Chappelle. With, with, I'm, I'm sure that Dave Chappelle <laughs> and I disagree on a lot of stuff, but on this stuff, we are on the same page. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, th that's because the lines are being drawn in harsh and terrible fashion. There's no such thing as repentance. There's no such thing as an honest conversation where you just go to somebody like, you know, mm. that thing you said 10 years ago, I thought that was really offensive. And the person's like, you know, me too. Like, I wish I hadn't yeah. said that. Yeah. that. That's just kind of gone. And that's really dangerous and bad. So that, that would be problem number one gotcha. that I see facing the country. We, we've talked about that a lot in this show. You've yeah. actually <clears throat> said almost verbatim that, it, that you think that's the most dangerous thing affecting. Uh, I think I think in 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 uh, conversation, it's huge when it comes to uh, entertainment. But I also believe it's the biggest obstacle we face from a legislative standpoint is the inability of the right and the left to come together and make any meaningful change through compromise. Mm. We just have separate aisles where 
the left may even know, and I'll use the left, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. why not? The left may even know that something the right is proposing is the right answer to a problem. And they simply will not make a compromise just because it's the right that's proposing it and vice versa. And so 100%. we're at a, we're at a stalemate and impasse, whatever you want to call it. I was talking with a friend of mine who teaches over mm-hmm. at Wharton business school, maybe a couple of weeks ago. And he said, if you want to have a good conversation with someone, you start with the solution. If you want to have a bad conversation with someone, start with the problem. Mm -hmm. And what you see in politics these days is that the easiest way to get people to love you and to be interested in you is you label a problem. And then you say, it's a big problem. And the other person says, well, but I don't like your solution. Okay, well, that's because you're not taking the problem seriously enough. If you really were serious about the problem, well, I think we can all acknowledge that we're all serious about the same problems. Take gun control, right? I think we're all very serious about no one wants to see innocent people shot at a Walmart. Mm. We're all on the same page there. No one wants to see innocent kids gunned down in a classroom. We have different solutions to that, and we should be clear about what we think those solutions are. But politicians aren't in the business of trying to be clear or be specific, because then we can either think it's a good idea or a bad idea. They're in the business of trying to castigate, to, to hit the moral character of somebody on the other side for political gain. And that, that does hold true for both sides. I've been railing against this for, for a long time, these sort of, we disagree, therefore you're morally inferior point of view. And it bears real political fruit. The best politicians are really good at this and, and they do it. I do mean, you, I think Trump does it. I think the yeah. Democrats do it. I think that, I think pretty much everybody does it. It's, a, it's an easy buck. Do you think that <clears throat> that uh, ideology and that uh, polarization from political candidates was what kind of led to the Trump presidency? And do you think that Trump as a president is more divisive uh, than than those that came before him, less, more polarizing? I mean, he's definitely more divisive and polarizing, but I think that he's a symptom, not the cause. So mm-hmm. I don't think the world started spinning on in November of 2016. In mm-hmm. other words, I think that right. Trump happened for a reason, and it happened because a lot of people were supremely pissed off yep. because they'd been told for years, your voice doesn't matter, no one cares about you, you're outside the mainstream, you can't, you can't be part of this conversation. And those people got sick of it, and they were like, okay, F you, and F you came in the form of Trump. I mean, Trump is not a person who knows anything about policy. He doesn't have a conservative philosophy. He brags that he's written more books than he's read. I mean, this is not somebody who people elected because they were like, oh, what amazing ideas he had. Right. They, they, they elected him because he was a giant pulsating middle finger to the establishment in a variety of ways, right? To, to an establishment in the media that said, we can't have conversations, to an establishment that, that established these, these kind of rules of political correctness that he was constantly railing against. And listen, I think that Trump fails to make the distinction. And, and I, I talked about this a lot in 2016. I think he fails to make the distinction between being politically incorrect and just being a jackass, right? There is a yeah, difference. Yeah, like yeah, being yeah. politically incorrect <laughs> is saying things that have to be said because they have to be said. And if it offends people, so be it. Being a jackass is saying things that don't need to be said just yeah. to be a jackass. Yeah. And, there, and there is a difference between those two things, and it's easy to conflate them. And you see Trump do this on a fairly regular basis, but <laughs> he is a result of people feeling hemmed in. And the result of that is that he busts loose a lot of things. I think some of that busting loose was necessary and good. I think that he's also unleashed some, some real, the, the kind of Freudian id in American politics, and, and everybody's ramped it up. I mean, you've seen it. It, it, I thought it was bad in 2015, 2016. I mean, we had riots in 2015, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but I, I think that you're, you're, you're seeing it ramp up and ramp up and ramp up to the point where it feels like something has to give. I mean, I think everybody has that feeling, like something has to, some, this has to calm down somehow, right? Mm. And it's not calming down, unfortunately. Mm. Before we move on to uh, number two, um, regarding your, your uh, number one, that you think the inability to converse is one of the biggest problems we face as Americans. Do you have a solution to that or a proposed solution so that maybe people listening here could grow up yeah. and put it in the back of their mind? I mean, so, so a couple of things. 
number one, I think that the the number one solution, ironically, is is for people to say F you to people who want them to stop having conversations. Mm. Because right now, there's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure on people not to have conversations. You, you had major figures in Hollywood just this week coming out and trying to blacklist anybody who supported Trump in Beverly Hills and saying, well, I, won't, I mean, Eric McCormick said, literally, I will not work with anybody who voted for Trump. That's half the country, man. I mean, wow. 63 million people <clears throat> voted for Trump. Right. Uh, the, the, the proper response to that is not to cave to that or to be shy. It's to say, listen, you don't want to have a conversation with me. It's because you're a jerk. It's because mm. you're a jerk. Now, does that mean that every point of view is equally valid or equally good? Of course not. I mean, that's what we're arguing about. Yeah. But the, the worst solution to most things is to simply say, I'm not even going to discuss it with you. Because ironically, what ends up happening is very often you end up giving that thing a signal boost. So say that you want to fight a bad idea. You have two choices. You can either not fight the bad idea and just pretend it doesn't exist, kind of quash it. Or you can come out and say, here's why this is a bad idea. Here are all the reasons why it's a bad idea. Steven Pinker, who's the sociologist, psychiatrist, neuropsychiatrist over, over at Harvard University, he did this whole speech a couple of years ago where he said, one of the reasons you're seeing extremist groups grow is because when you say to people, you can't even ask the question, people then start looking for an answer. And if you're not providing an answer, they go to the only answers they can find. And very often those answers suck and are terrible. Mm -hmm. And you'd be much better off sitting there and saying, okay, here's all the reasons why what you're saying is stupid or wrong or untrue, why it's immoral for you to say that. You at least have to knock down the other side's ideas or or the bad ideas if you wish people to not believe in those ideas. If you just say to them, how dare you even ask that question? That's a terrible question for you to ask. It doesn't work in, it doesn't work in politics. It doesn't work in religion. I mean, as a religious Jew, I think the number one reason that people leave religion from what I see is people go to church, they ask a tough question or synagogue, and somebody says, you shouldn't ask that question. How dare you ask that question? It's mm. a bad question. And mm. people are like, well, if I can't ask the question, I'm out. Mm. So and do you I think, think the same thing's yeah. in politics. Do yeah. you think the solution then to all this is outside of politics, outside of religion? And if so, like, where is it? What does it look like? I mean, I, I think that the real solution is we actually have to spend some face time with each other and we have to have conversations with each other and we don't penalize people for engaging in the conversation. Right? The conversation is not the problem. How you, how you deal in the conversation could be a problem, right? Mm-hmm. If you give too much credence to a terrible idea <laughs> or if you give a bad idea signal boost. And again, you have to be careful of that, right? Like there are people who are awful. You have a white supremacist on and then you just don't fight them at all. You just mm-hmm. let them, like that's a terrible idea. If you're going to have that person on, you have to smash them with ideas and facts and demonstrate why they're wrong. You know, I, I think that you do have to draw a balance between who you have on. Sometimes it's not worth it. Sometimes you're giving more exposure to an idea that, that ought not be given exposure. But when you're talking about mainstream ideas, the Overton window, right? There's yeah, yeah. this famous idea of the Overton window, <clears throat> the window of acceptable discourse. I think that a lot of folks right now are trying to shrink the Overton window and say that most discourse is unacceptable. And I think they're, in response, people who are broadening the Overton window too much and saying all discourse is equally valid. Mm. I don't think that's true either. But honestly, the best way to have conversations is to recognize the person who's talking to you is not at root a bad person just because they disagree with you. And you get this so much. I mean, it's getting, it's, it's really gotten vile. It's really yeah, gotten yeah, bad. Yeah. I mean, I'll be out in public with my kids and somebody will sidle up and say something nasty. This happened a couple times in the last month. It never happened to me before in my entire life. This will happen. This happened a couple times in the last month. And I thought, you don't need, like the person wasn't even correct about my ideas. It was just that they were angry and they wanted to take out the anger. doesn't matter. I'm holding my five-year-old, right? right. They, they just wanted to take out the anger. And I thought, you know, as much as I portray myself as not a human being, I am also a human being. <laughs> and, you know, we should treat each other with a certain level of respect in discourse. And I mean, I, I don't always succeed at that, but I really do try to do that. I mean, yeah, I'll yeah. mock people on my show or whatever, but I also have a Sunday special where I bring on people from the other side right, and we have right, these right. hour long conversations. Mm. I, I've had, I have conversations routinely with people <laughs> with whom I disagree. And, you know, it, it, 
I'm, I'm sure there are people who are better at it than I, but I think that, you know, that's the kind of behavior that we need. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to get to know our neighbors a little bit more. I think social media has been really bad for this. I was, was going to ask that. Do you think the chosen channel <clears throat> of said discourse being social media is a, is a massive problem? <laughs> it's a disaster. It's a disaster. I mean, I, I think that it depends on the method of the distribution. So I think if you're talking about YouTube, for example, that's just a place where people are basically viewing content. It's really like in the comment section, maybe you get a little bit of conversation, yeah. but not really. It's not what it's for. Uh, and, but, but Twitter is really bad. I mean, Twitter is a toxic place because it's, it's a place- censorship, to, like, well, is it no, censorship? It's just, it's no, it's, it's the attitude, meaning it's, it's a place to dunk and be dunked upon, right? Mm-hmm. It is not a place where you're going to get a long argument about nuance. Right. That's not what it's for. I mean, it's deliberately created for short attention spans in now less than 280 characters. I don't have the ability to have a, a substantive discussion about the solutions to climate change with you in 280 characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead, yeah. it's much easier. And then the tweets that get all the retweets, the incentive system is structured yeah. so that the funnier you are, or the, which very often coincides with the nastier Nasty, you are, yeah. the, the more likes and retweets you get. And so the people who are most successful on Twitter, myself included, are people who spend long hours dunking on people. Yep. And it's one of the reasons why, and, 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 and simultaneously dunked being dunked, dunked upon. On. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You get to, and, and you've, uh, you've been dunked on too. A thousand times. Yeah. I trend about once a month now. Yeah. And, and yeah. honestly, I've disengaged in tremendous ways from Twitter. I used, to, I used to be much more involved. I used to think it was more fun. There's also been kind of a mood shift on Twitter. And that is that, 10 years ago, it was basically like a chat room with kind of your friends and like people you would hang out with. And so you'd make irreverent jokes and dumb jokes and everybody knew they were jokes. And now it's, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go through your entire history. Oh my God. And we're going to dig up some dumbass thing you said 10 yeah. years ago. And we're going to take it out of context and say, this is your actual view on the thing. Yeah. And this is exactly what happened to Kevin Hart, right? And it's happened to a bunch of people. It happened to Sarah Jong at the New York Times from the right. It happened to James Gunn from the right. It's happened to, uh, it happened to this, this, kid Kyle Kashuv on from the left. I mean, it, it's, it's this constant attempt to destroy somebody with something they said 10 years ago. Well, none of us have a time machine. A lot of us said stuff that we wouldn't say now because guess what? Some social standards have changed in the last 10 mm-hmm. years. Some of us have changed along with them. <laughs> and sometimes what we said 10 years ago was a joke and you're now taking it out of context. What do you hope to gain? Are you actually trying to elucidate and figure out what I think? Or are you just trying to dig something up to demonstrate that I'm an idiot or that I said something bad or I should be canceled. Or I should be canceled. Cancel culture is the worst. Listen, when Sarah, again, I'm, I'm, I think it is fair to say that one side of the political aisle has gone too far when I'm now on the same side of this issue as Sarah Silverman. Okay. That is not possible. <laughs> that is not a possible thing. But Sarah Silverman is anti-cancel culture. I'm anti-cancel culture. I've defended everybody on the left who's been subjected to this. I defended mm-hmm. Silverman. I defended Sarah Zhang. I defended, I defended Gunn. I, I've defended like pretty Are much Are there examples everyone. that you defend Weinstein, uh, people like that, that have actually done something? Well, no, he committed a crime, right? right? I mean, you, right, you commit right, a crime, right. you go to yep. jail. Yep. It turns out you try to, you, you rape people. I think that you should go to jail forever, right? Yep. I think that yep. if you rape somebody, castration or death are my preferred solutions. But if, yep. but, it, but if you're talking about just, you said a bad thing, it's a bad thing. It feels like a substitute for puritanical religion, frankly. Mm-hmm. And, and it's worse than religion. At least in religion, it's like, oh, you did something bad in front of God. So you go to shul, you go to synagogue. You'd be or forgiven you, for it. Right, yeah. you, you do some yep. repentance, yep. You, you search your own heart, you pledge to change. Now it's like, well, we're going to have a Maoist struggle session with you. You sit here and you announce all the ways in which you've been bad. And then you're like, oh, you're right. You know, I was bad. That was really bad. And then they're like, right, you were bad. Weren't you? Like, right, that's what I just said. And they're like, no, no, no. You were bad. And that, <laughs> means, and that means that we can no longer talk with you. You're outside the realm of acceptable discourse. Yeah. Well, okay, let's be real about this. Give nobody is, take a mile. Nobody is perfect. 
And the problem is what this actually leads to is this really perverse incentive structure where your incentive is not actually to apologize for the stuff you do wrong. Your best move is to double down on the stuff you did wrong. Because if you apologize, then they just club you in the face over it. We, we've, we've talked about this I've so seen it. Much. You've yeah. seen possibly the most classic example yep. of said apology structure right here sitting next to you. We've talked about <clears throat> being unapologetic. And I think you've always taken that stance. It's something that I admire. I think Be- you should apologize for stuff you do wrong. And then if they don't accept it, Yourself. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can say yeah. fuck, by the way. If you want I know. I, mean, I, I, I try not to every so often. Yeah, no, it's yeah. good. You probably should. By the kids the way. will watch this That's at good. some point. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I feel like the tides are turning big time, though. And, and honestly, probably because of people like ourselves that have podcasts that can actually keep fighting these. You know, you know what gave me, you know what gave me a lot of hope? The Dave Chappelle special. I swear to God. I, I watched it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You watched it? 100%. Yeah. It, it, was, it was to me, in a way, sort of maybe marked the. Beginning of what could be the end of the era of cancel culture. Mm. I, I think that's right. And, and it, you know what? It's funny. It's not just Chappelle. So did you see Aziz Ansari's special yes. on Netflix? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's th- at the very beginning, right, he does the uh, his obligatory apology for something he didn't do wrong. Right. Right? I mean, that whole story was asinine. Yep. Basically, it was a date that got awkward and the girl got pissed <laughs> and then she wrote about it. And yep. It was really obnoxious and they decided to run him through the ringer. And because we now live in this idiotic culture, he was like, okay, now I'm gonna have to go on my apology tour and all this nonsense. But- most of his special is about like how annoying the woke left is, how they're constantly mm. trying to signal mm. at you how mm. wonderful they are, but they're not actually doing anything that's mm. useful or wonderful. Yep. And and Chappelle, I think, because Chappelle is much more unapologetic than Aziz Ansari, like Aziz Ansari threw them the fish and then they're like, okay, we'll let you do all the rest of this. Chappelle was like completely F you. He just walks out yeah. and he's like, I'm not apologizing for anything. I'm gonna say exactly what I think. And they came for him, right? I mean, the reviewers yeah. were all, he's siding with the powerful. Yeah. Really? Or is he just telling a joke you don't like? Yeah. And now you're angry because he told a joke that you don't like. Well, get used to it. Man up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Stop, stop being stop being such a pansy. Like, really, mm-hmm. just toughen up and deal with the fact that some people are going to tell jokes. Like, people tell jokes about you. People tell jokes about me. Part of being a good person is recognizing that you're not perfect and then laughing at yourself and recognizing that half those jokes are true or more than half of those jokes yeah. are true and making fun of yourself or whatever. But the left's <laughs> lack of sense of humor is creating this opening where- I think the entire comedic community is beginning to realize, wait a second, I'm not allowed to tell jokes anymore. Like if I tell a joke, because jokes inherently target a truth that's uncomfortable, that's what jokes are for. Mm. But uncomfortable truths offend people. They're microaggressions. So jokes themselves are now canceled. I mean, this is why Seinfeld won't do sets on college campuses Comedy is canceled. Comedy, this is how you end up with Hannah Gadsby. Right? You end up with Hannah Gadsby because comedy got canceled. Right. So what we're doing now is we're backfilling the definition of comedy. So you get the most unfunny human being on planet Earth doing this special, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Dave Chappelle, who's legitimately maybe the funniest human 30, being on planet Earth. He's at like 20%, yeah, yeah. 33%. Wow. But 100% on, on critic, on uh, audience score. Right. So you see this right. direct, uh, <laughs> this completely incorrect, right, the what's audience, the word I'm looking the, for the, here? The, no correlation. No, absolutely right. no correlation yeah. between the audience right. score and the Metacritic score right. because the critics are rating it supposedly based on- The values. They're ba- the, exactly. the values that they yeah, want, exactly. not based on the humor. Like, the so, people right. who tuned into Chappelle right. got exactly- So the Rotten Tomatoes- That was a close score. The, the Rotten Tomatoes you know, human rating score that's not the critics, that score is based on were your expectations fulfilled. Right. right? That's why you'll see a crappy movie that gets 100% uh, fan score on Rotten Tomatoes because- People are rating it not based on whether it's good or not, but it's exactly what I expected or it's not exactly what I expected. People who tuned into Chappelle got Chappelle. The critics tuned into Chappelle and they expected Hannah Gadsby. And so they were very disappointed and upset. Yeah. Mm. The critics tuned into Hannah Gadsby and they got exactly what they expected. 
And the viewer tuned into Hannah Gadsby. They're like, what is this? this shit, yeah. There is nothing funny here, like remotely funny. And the critics were like, well, maybe it's because you don't understand our new broader definition of comedy, which involves you <laughs> suffering as though you're being hit with a drill bit between the eyes. I mean, like, yeah. her, her special is so painfully terrible. And you're seeing this so much in, in sort of late night comedy too. Like Stephen Colbert used to be a funny human. I don't know what happened to Stephen Colbert. Like, I can't watch Stephen Colbert anymore. Oh, no. he's, he's, become, he's become so terrible in so many ways to me. Jimmy Kimmel used to be a deeply funny human being until he became, as my friend Guy Benson says, the woke Pope of late night. When now he's gonna like go out there and rail about how his daughter had an open heart surgery and talk about healthcare. Like, all of that is very moving. I'm not sure what that has to do with your job, which is to provide comedic relief to, the, to, to everybody's day. I mean, beyond which- I, I have general objections to people using their children as uh, as narrative tools. I'm, I'm not I'm not a big fan of it. My own daughter had the had a heart surgery from the same exact surgeon as Jimmy Kimmel, and I never used that as a talking point against Obamacare. It was absurd. Is there anyone on the liberal left, as as it would be defined, I guess, or you define it, that you are watching that you actually can watch, or do you think it's all become so politicized? And and also, I think another interesting thing to hear from you would be what you think of the toxicity on the right. As on the fringe right, the far right, there is toxicity. I think we, we can agree on that. And and I'd, I'd be yep. curious to hear if you think <laughs> that it in any way compares to the toxicity on the left and, and which is worse. So it sort of depends on defining terms. So when you say, are there people on the left who I listen to and like? Yeah, Dave Chappelle, I'm sure, votes Democrat. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I'm sure that Aziz Ansari votes Democrat. Right? These are all people with whom I disagree. Yep. I really enjoy their stuff because their stuff is funny. I think John Stewart is a funny guy. I disagree with him on everything. I think he's a funny guy. Like, I, I don't really have a problem separating off this is funny from how dare you say something I don't like politically. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, as far as the, the toxicity on the right, it depends which part of the right you're talking about. So very often when people say the right, they mean the quote unquote alt-right. Right? They're talking mm -hmm. about the, the quasi white supremacist or white supremacist adjacent groups. I don't consider those people to be conservative. Because conservatism is about the idea that America is based on God-given liberties protected by government and judgment of individuals as individuals and not as members of groups. What that has to do with white supremacy is absolutely beyond me. Right? Mm. I mean, not only do I hate white supremacy and white supremacists, I was their number one target in 2016. Yep, yep. I have 24-7 security. We spend seven figures a year on security because of death threats from white supremacists. Four months ago, a white supremacist was arrested by the FBI for threatening to kill me and my family. Like, I don't, <laughs> consider, I, I don't consider white supremacists to be on the same side of the aisle as I am, to yeah. put it very, very mildly. Yeah. Uh, so there is that. Are they toxic? Yes, they're disgusting. They're awful. They're terrible. Is there toxicity on the mainstream right? Yeah, there's toxicity on the mainstream right in the sense that if it, everyone sort of wants to follow the leader, and this is just a human tendency generally, right, left, or center. And right now, because Trump is such a polarizing figure, it feels like Trump is the black hole around the, about which the entire universe now revolves. For sure. And so for a lot of people on the right, because I play this game that I've called for years, good Trump, bad Trump, where if he does something good, I'm like, yeah. And if he does something bad, I'm like, oh, what a jerk. What are you yeah, yeah. Like, I try to call it as I see it from a conservative does point of view. Does that put you in a minority? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I think anytime you try to call it as you see it, you end up in a minority right, because right. cognitive dissonance is tough. Right? It's tough for people to deal with, yeah, Trump as, as a human being is kind of a schmuck. He doesn't have ideas, right? He, he says silly and dumb and bad things. He said things that I think are terrible and bad for the country. Also, he gave me a bunch of, judges that I like. Also, he gave me a tax cut that I like. Also, I like that he's trying to reduce the size and scope of the executive branch. Right? Also, I like that he moved the embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Like, I can like all these things and also not think that he is a good, a, a person of solid moral character. Mm. I, can, I can think all that at once, but people have a tough time with that. And so it's like, well, you're disloyal to him. 
How dare you? Right. This is this mm. is this is terrible. How could you criticize him? That's right? I think be that's, on the Trump train or be yeah. off the Trump train, but don't be in between. Do you it's think? Like, well, do you think we can do what we're talking about through a two party system? Is it possible, or or is it just there's too much back and forth that's not productive? Um, the answer is yes, but we have to reduce the value of politics in our lives. So I think that most of the stuff that we do in our daily lives has very little to do with politics. Right. The fact is, look, I, when I'm out in public. A lot of folks will come up and say hello, yeah, but I'm yeah. sure you get way more folks than I do coming out to say hello because you're not in the political business. Mm. And this is true for all of the celebrities that I know who are not in politics. Like when you when you consume information, how much time on a daily basis do you devote to politics? <laughs> the answer is maybe if, if you're like upper echelon in America, you're spending like half an hour, an hour a day. But that's changed dramatically since 2016, right? right? So that and is it's, radically it's, increasing. It's so, it's so funny when you watch it too because- people like my mom, right? Or even certain people that I've worked with in the past, they will have this always on fiery agenda. Like I'll be like, hey, how was your uh, weekend? Well, it was good until I saw that new truck. That never fucking existed until 2016. <laughs> yeah. And Thanksgiving now- Thanksgiving sucks nowadays. Every, every time. Ooh. And now, and you go and you're like, and I, I finally, personally, cause I was on that same <laughs> yeah. tip for a while too. I was watching everything he tweeted, every little thing. And eventually I got to a point where I said to myself, why the fuck am I watching all of this stuff? Yeah. I don't, as much as it all is very concerning and all the different topics are, the, the majority of the attention you pay to it is because you are against the other side this and you're right. trying to, right. to, to win in some way. It's like an ego thing. I think this is right. I, I think that what, what has happened you know, is, a, is a deeper after effect of a collapse of what I called the social fabric earlier. That's a term that, that was coined by a sociologist at Harvard named Robert Putnam. He has a great book called Bowling Alone. And in this book, he talks about the fact that in the 50s and the 60s, pretty much everybody in America was a member of a bowling club. Like if you see in L.A., bowling alleys all over the place, like what the heck, who bowls, right? Yeah, like yeah. that's something you did when you dated and you were 17. But like, yeah. is that, like, is there a huge crowd of people bowling? And the answer is that in the 50s and 60s, this was the <clears throat> growth industry in America. Something like 70 or 80% of Americans bowled with other Americans. Wow. And, <laughs> the, and that has, and now, when was the last time that you spent time, not with the people you work with, but time with just a group of people that you enjoy on a regular basis, the answer is, unless you go to church or synagogue, probably never, probably never. Outside, the, the only places where we see other human beings now because of social media and because of travel time and because, frankly, we don't have a lot of reasons to get together anymore. Mm. The only times we see each other are in church or in synagogue or at work. That's why we got school. the mother tree, right? Right, boys? Yeah, there we go. go. The, this is actually the brothership. The brothership. The brothership. We've, got, we've got some meeting places here go. in the uh, here in LA that encourage that type of you well, know, that neighborhood behavior. We but like that, we like Dave and Busters. Yes, yeah, so we'll do Dave and Busters. We'll do movie theaters and stuff like that. But even then, it now it's a group of people who are collectively sitting on their cell phones. Right. Do you know and, what I'm saying? Yeah. So you're sitting at a dinner. Everyone's fucking scrolling. Everyone's looking at their Instagram and who's texting who and all this. And technically, like that friendly discourse that, you know, involvement with people of like, you know, of like-minded or, or by the way, not like-minded right. people and the ability to have those healthy debates is completely absent from well, today's society. You do have to have a core of commonality with the people that live around you, or you're not going to have a community. I mean, there has to be something that you share in common. And it used to be that we shared at least I think more in common, at least aspirationally. I mean, American history is replete with suffering and people excising the other and treating gay people badly and treating black people horribly and treating lots of people horribly, treating women horribly. All of that is true. It is also true that the aspiration, which was we believe in freedom of speech and debate and discussion. And we also believe that the government should not run every aspect of our lives. And we also believe that when we get together in church, that we can worship together. Like these were all social institutions that were actually fairly strong. And as they began to break down, 
people didn't replace them with other social institutions. They replaced them with a sense of alienation and upset and anger and feeling alone and feeling isolated. And this is, this is Putnam's point. He says, a diverse society can only hold together when you have common aspirations. So he says, you know, his, his line in the book is, as the diversity of a census tract goes up, he's speaking of ethnic diversity, as the diversity of, an, of a census tract goes up, the only two things that you know is that you will have an increase in protest marches and television watching. That's not a case against ethnic diversity. It is a case against his original presupposition, which was that diversity is our strength. He says, diversity can be a strength. It can also be a weakness. The question as to whether it's a strength or a weakness lies in whether those diverse people have a common goal. So right. if you have a diverse group of people who are in the army, have you ever met dudes in the military? For sure. That is a diverse crowd, right? I mean, that's a bunch of different races, a yeah. bunch of different income levels. And it doesn't matter at all because their common goal is they get together, they train, they fight, they have a common goal, right? In a, in a business, you guys, you know, you, you put together Top a diverse line, crowd revenue, of people, whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and your goal is the same. Yeah. You go to church together. If you all have a set of diverse experiences, but the same goal, that's really good for your community. Diversity is great for a community when you have the same common aspiration. So the question for the country is what is our common aspiration at this point? And can you even credit your neighbor with having that aspiration? Meaning, do you think that the person who sits next to you is an enemy of the future of the country? Or do you think that that person has basically the same idea as what they want for the future of the country, but they want to get there in a different way? Mm. Because that's a completely different discussion, right? Yeah. If you and I think, you know what? We both, we both agree. We want to lower gun violence. Gun violence is terrible. Right? We both agree on that. And then I say, you know, I see some problems with your solution. Here's my solution. Maybe we can clarify and then come to some sort of agreement. That is a very different conversation than, you know what? If you disagree with my solution, it's because you don't care if kids get killed at a school. Well, now I'm your enemy. Right? You've just declared yeah. that I'm evil. What the hell am I supposed to do with that? How yeah, does the conversation emotional. take place? Turns emotional real quick. Yep, yeah, for sure. Do you think Do you think people in, in some ways have gotten lazy when it comes to disputes and debates? And, and, and you know, is it is it always people just going to a place of, oh, you don't see my things my way? Then you, you're a racist or you're a... A uh, transgender hater, a gun, you know, hater, a constitution hater, which we hear right. a lot. Do you think people have just because the other thing now is that everyone has a platform. Right. Everyone has a platform, and I, I know you've had some thoughts on that. You've had some thoughts on LeBron speak, speaking out, right? And I've, I've seen some stuff about that. Do you think everyone deserves to have a platform for public discourse? I mean, I think that everybody. It's good that everybody has a platform. It doesn't make you an expert on things. I mean, just because you have a mic doesn't mean you know what the hell you're talking about. And and I think that that is a problem. I also think that, yeah, I mean, as I say, if we lack commonality between ourselves, we find commonality in tribes. And that's what you're seeing now. You're seeing you're seeing tribalism in terms of race, which is really ugly. This is what you see from the alt-right and the white supremacists. You're seeing tribalism in terms of politics, which is if you don't love Trump, then you're my enemy. And if you if you even think that Trump is a human being who breathes, then you're my enemy. Uh, they, you're going to find a community that, you surround yourself with. The question is, what is that oriented against? And one of the things that happened in American politics is that the, the community that America was oriented against for most of the 20th century was the Soviet Union, right? We had an external enemy. It helped unify Americans. Because like, as much as I don't like the guy who lives next door to me, at least he ain't no commie bastard trying to nuke me, right? Yeah. And then yeah. the Soviet Union goes away. And it's like, okay, well, what do I have in common with that guy next door anyway? Do we really have all that much in common? That's what, I was, that's what I was asking. What Do you think, and even prior to that, during the height of the Cold War, do you think that any of that, um, any of the stuff that was happening during that time acted as a true catalyst to isolation? A time when people started to spend more time in front of the TV watching the news, what was happening in Russia? Build your bomb shelters, take care of your family. Like, do you think that that could have, in a way, acted as a catalyst to start that isolation process? I think that has less to do with the news and more the method of distribution, okay. meaning TV is effectively addictive. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, as we all know, I, I can put my 
two and a half year old, my three year old in front of TV and uh, he will just zone out, right? He'll just zombie out. I mean, it's, it's, it just treats your brain in a very different way. Social media platforms are built to be addictive. They're built so that you are constantly refreshing and refreshing mm-hmm. and, and you actually get a withdrawal symptom, right? And like I was, you know, I, I used to, only in the last month, I think, have I, have I really started to try and break my addiction to Twitter. But it, would, it became like a compulsion. It was like I would, I would reach into my pocket. I'm bored for 15 seconds. Reach into my pocket, pull it out, try and refresh Twitter, hear that kind of click. It's now been updated. Yeah. Put it back in my pocket. I'm sitting at dinner. Nothing's going on for 15 seconds. Is that good for family relationships? Is that good for the ability to have a conversation? Yeah, I mean, you, I, I think that the, all this is scary Have you guys stuff. seen the, the patent for the television? Have you ever no, seen that? No. Oh, this is super interesting. So the uh, you might want to pull this up. They, they found that... Uh, physiological effects have been observed in a human being subject in response to simulation of the skin with weak electromagnetic fields that are pulsed with certain frequencies near half a hertz or 2.4 hertz, uh, such as such as to excite a sensory resonance. Yeah. So the TV is actually, when you look at the patent, it's designed to do that. It's designed to, like you said, have kids zombie out, have a zombie out and just tune into that frequency that that television's emitting. Well, also, I think that ev- evolutionarily we are built to watch what the creatures around us are doing, mainly for ad- adaptive reasons, right? You don't want to yeah. get killed by the guy sitting next to you. Yeah. But if you have interesting things that other people are doing in front of you 24 hours a day, I mean, we were built to do that. We were built to watch that. And get, but those people yeah. aren't coming out of the TV, right? And, but, but we still have that same reaction, <laughs> yeah. which is the people are going to come out of the TV. They threaten us. It's bad. Mm. We have to stop them. And and this is the really concerning thing. Is, and I see this on college campuses a lot. The conflation of speech I don't like with violence. So when I went to Berkeley, it required 600 uh, yeah. police officers for me to go speak that, yeah. at, at Berkeley. I mean, they had the, 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 they had the stadies on reserve because Antifa was threatening stuff. My speech was literally about free speech. It was, it was I think, pretty uncontroversial. The entire thing was just free speech is good. 600 police officers are required for this sort of thing. And the the... Uh, the, the, the people outside were chanting. And what they were chanting was, speech is violence. This is literally what they were chanting. Speech is violence. And I thought to myself, are you insane? Are you insane? Of course speech is not violence. This is a fundamental distinction. Me talking to you and saying something you don't like is not an excuse for, me, for you to punch me in the face. Mm. And if you think speech is violence, well, then the only thing that you can do rationally is to react to my violence with your violence, in yeah. which case I'm going to react with violence to you. How are you supposed to have a conversation when if I say something to you and I'm not talking about like fighting words, you know, in the Supreme Court doctrine, I'm not talking about I walk up to a black guy and call him the N-word and he punches me. I'm talking about I say something like single motherhood is a significant predictor of intergenerational poverty. Of course, 100% true, right? Backed by every sociological study ever done. And somebody's like, well, that's offensive. That's violence. And now I'm going to try to shut down your speech. If, if you're that weak minded, then frankly, you don't believe in the First Amendment. You don't believe in basic American principles. If you can't take an argument you don't like and just deal with it, at least to the extent of not trying to shut it down, you are the fascist. Do you do you think that you uh, <clears throat> do you think that you poke the beehive sometimes? I saw you last sure. night calling a uh, <laughs> I saw you last night calling a transgender uh, woman sir in a debate. It was that it so, was that NHL debate. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was and, the, and the reason I bring it up is because it almost led to violence. Right. And, and it was it was speech and it was it was I mean it did lead to a physical assault. Right? I mean and so <laughs> so he reached over, grabbed me by the back of the neck and said, if if you don't cut that out, I'll send you home in an ambulance. To which I have to say my my first mental response was that doesn't even make sense. You don't go home in an ambulance. But <laughs> the, but the, <laughs> 
But, but, but why did you, why say, did that? you say that? You should have said why that. Why did you say that? I'm, su- I'm sure yeah. your whole so demeanor changed. No. Right? It, it was it was so shocking, honestly. Like yeah. to be to be physically accosted on national TV was kind of a shocking thing. What I mean, what I did say is that doesn't seem you said it's, particularly it's, appropriate it's, for it's political debate. Mildly appropriate for political debate, right? I mean, so the okay. So here is my perspective on the on the transgender use of the use of transgender pronouns. So obviously I'm not going to do the, I have transgender friends thing because it's stupid. I will say that if I am in a room with a transgender person, we're at dinner together, I call them by whatever pronouns they want to be called. Why? Because I would do that for pretty much anybody. We're having a polite conversation. If the topic of the debate is the use of the pronouns, I'm not going to call you by your preferred pronoun because that's me losing the debate before the debate even starts. Mm -hmm. So if the entire topic of the debate is, should I be forced to say he about a biological woman? And that's the entire topic of the debate. Then the moment I say he about you, I've lost the debate. So the answer is no. So, I mean, the Zoe Turr thing, what mm. happened there, I mean, to be honest with you, it was not, it sounds ridiculous, but it was not even a conscious thing. Zoe Turr, his voice, he's a man, he's a biological man. His voice is lower than mine. And Zoe Turr was sitting next to me and saying, you don't know anything about biology, little boy. You don't know anything about biology, little boy. And I said, so what is your biology, sir? And this prompted the entire blow up. Now, if I were out to dinner with Zoe Turr, I'd call Zoe Turr by whatever Zoe Turr wanted to be called by. Mm-hmm. But the entire debate was whether biological women are in fact men and should be, and should be called such or vice versa. And so I, I make a very stark distinction between public debate and public fora and how I treat people privately because they are very different. The entire argument is not made for the benefit of Zoe Turr. The entire argument is made for the benefit of the viewer. And Zoe Turr's biology was relevant to that debate because presumably the reason Zoe Turr was on the program was specifically to discuss his biology. Right, to discuss why he is a woman, despite the fact that he's a biological man. So I, I was not willing to give up that point, mm. and my unwillingness to give up the point became the issue. I, I, you know, it looks like I'm trying to poke the bear there. I really, and there, there are certain situations where obviously I have. I, I, yeah, I really, yeah. when, when it happened, I didn't think to myself, I'm deliberately trying to be provocative. Uh, it was, it, I, I should have seen it coming, frankly, because the producer backstage before the thing starts says, yeah, I used to produce for Jerry Springer. I should be, at that point, I should be like, oh, oh Jerry, I see which way, Jerry, they, I see which way this is going. <laughs> Do we, we, when we talk about, because um, we watch you, by the way, like we'll, we'll, we'll pull up your stuff, watch, watch your oh, Thanks, um, and by the way, debates. I will say, I hope that you also watch, you know, people on the left, right? I always say, on my own show, I always say people should watch Pod Save America. I don't think they return the courtesy, but yeah, you yeah. should always watch both sides and then make up your mind. And, and I think one of the most polarizing, you know, conversations that you have is this, is this transgender, transphobia, gender dysphoria conversation. And the question, uh, we landed on, I'll speak for myself. I landed on and, and, and discussed a lot last night in preparation for this was, um, why do you care? It was a question we kept coming back to. Why, why do you care if, um, Johnny wants to be Susie or, by the way, 10 years from now, Susie wants to be a cactus. Okay, so I don't care if you're an adult. <laughs> I, I really don't care. I mean, right, if you're right. an adult, I, I've never stumped against anybody getting a surgery they want to get or hormone treatment they want to get as an adult. That, that's, a, that's a you issue. I mean, that's, a, that's your decision. You're a responsible adult. I'm a libertarian. Do whatever it is that you want to do. If you are now mandating that I misuse the English language in order to flatter your sense of self, the answer is no, I'm not going to do that. And I don't think anyone should be forced to do that because if we do not share common definitions of words, we cannot have conversations with one another. If you want to say, I am a trans woman, but a biological male, we are on the same page. If you want me to call you a she in the same way that my wife is a she and use the same pronoun to describe you and my wife and you're a biological male, the answer is no, because you are not similar to my wife. My wife is a biological female. So I think it kind of the image that comes into my mind is when you go to a restaurant, there's now gender neutral 
Um, and what I see is there's these people who have this identity. Like I need to be, everybody needs to conform to my identity instead of how about if you're a transgender, become successful, open up your own restaurant and start to, you know, have gender neutral signs on your own establishment. Isn't that more active I mean, I, than I just fe- complaining I about feel it? I like you know? expecting a, a person to go into business if they want to be a gardener to have their own establishment to uh, justify their use of bathrooms. It's, it's is, one example. It seems a little bit it's, of a stretch. No, no, you it's, lost it's, me there, Spence. I, but I see what you're basically I'm making saying, a round for yourself. I'm just saying there's, yeah, yeah. there's action, right? Yeah. If, well, instead of walking into a place and, and trying getting to separate between governmental, governmental action and private action, Correct. which, is, which yeah. is an important thing, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that businesses should be, by the way, if you're transgender, you should be allowed to boycott whatever business you want to, right? You should be, uh, I'm not telling everybody you got to listen to my show. I don't think you have to agree with me. Mm-hmm. What I am saying is you don't get to point a government gun in my face and threaten to throw me in jail if I refuse to pretend that a biological man is actually a woman. That's are, not something I'm you, willing to do. Are you unwilling to compromise on uh, terminology that is inflammatory, whether or not the government says you should or society says you should? So, for example, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, the N word was heavily used in everyday conversation. I don't know, maybe a little bit further back. Let's right. not get into exact numbers. Right. But of course there, there's a, a very large difference between using the inherently derogatory term, mm-hmm. the N word, which is obviously a term that goes all the way back to slavery and is offensive on every level. I'm calling you right now. Uh, he is sitting right here, right? There's a dude. Yep. He's sitting right here. Am I deriding him? The answer is no. They, there's a woman I, sitting in the audience or back there. It's a she. Right. That's a a woman. Am I deriding her? No, there's nothing inherently based on their belief system. And and by the way, I'm I'm with you on it. But based on their belief system, you are deriding them or making a derogatory or inflammatory terminology towards them by not by by not. I guess to your point, by by not seeing things the way they see things. So once again, by seeing seeing things in in an objectively based way, meaning that it's not that I am making a different argument about the nature of he and she. I am making a biologically, factually, objectively verifiable argument about he and she, namely that there is such a thing as biology, that all mammalian species are dichotomous in terms of sex. There are people who are intersex. If you wanted to create a different pronoun for people who are intersex, that makes some sense to me because those are people who are intersex. But if you're saying, if your argument is that Caitlyn Jenner is a woman, Caitlyn Jenner is not a woman. Caitlyn Jenner is a man. Now, I'm happy to call Caitlyn Jenner Caitlyn Jenner. People can change because what you, what your name is, what, what we call you, that's subjective, right? You get to define that for everybody else. But you do not get to redefine fundamental terms of human biology simply because you have a subjective feeling about yourself. This is, this is my main objection. Beyond, beyond, <laughs> beyond pronouns and what uh, people expect you to address them as, is is... Do you have uh, an agenda per se? I guess like what's the what's the win here? Because like you I, you've also said uh, you've referred to being transgender as a like a, some sort of, some sort of delusion, a mental disorder. It is a mental disorder. So I so, mean, under the DSM, it's a mental disorder. It's gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria. So okay. So so then now that's that's not, not an what? insult. That the, the, the that's the, a medical. The DSM is the medical sworn the, by right it's, body it's, of work. Right. The, <laughs> no, so, so, uh, but so, the, so now what though? The, so the, there is no now what. I mean, it's just we are debating right now whether facts are even allowed to be stated. Mm. Right. This is my main issue here. Okay. Is that if you even say these things, then this is considered so controversial that you should be excised from polite society. But say we get mm, but, past that to LP's point. What and and say you so win. Not that there has to be a winner, but what's the what's the end game for? that people can say what they want, particularly when it happens to be true. And also that people 
I mean, there are some actual practical ramifications to this. So legally speaking, for example, right now there's an attempt to take Title IX and apply it to transgender people, which makes no sense at all. Okay, so Title IX obviously was established to create more opportunity for female equality in a variety of industries, including in college sports, for example. Okay, so to take the most obvious example, let's say that now we redefine female to mean you define yourself as female. Okay, we've seen this happen in MMA. It ain't pretty. Okay, when a biological male decides to fight MMA like Fallon Fox with a, with a biological female, it does not end well for the biological female because it turns out that biological females are not built the same way on average as biological males. We've seen this happen in, in high school and college sports mm-hmm. where you've seen male athletes who perform pretty well as males, but they aren't top notch, suddenly go into female sports and they're dominating, right? I mean, you, you do see this sort of stuff happening. And I, I don't I don't understand how you can simultaneously claim that you are a feminist standing up for women and also claim that a man can be a woman. Right? That, that, that seems mm. puzzling to me. There, there are a lot of internal contradictions here, logically mm. speaking. And when it comes to public policy, which is what I talk about most days, it depends on, you know, the, the ramifications that you're asking about depends on the policy that is that is sought, for example. So, for example, take the separate bathroom issue. So, I frankly, I don't really care where people go to the bathroom. Right? I, I really don't. What I do care about is that when my five-year-old daughter is in a bathroom with my wife and a biological male walks in, not even, let, let's take the most obvious example, not even a male who has had surgeries or hormone treatments to look like a woman, which at least it argues to me that there should be a different level of threat perceived by the people in the bathroom. Yeah. But let's say that you, Logan Paul, decide that you are going to identify that, that you are now transgender and I'm not being facetious. And you walk into a restroom with my wife and my daughter and my wife suddenly feels a threat. Is she wrong to feel a threat? I think the answer is absolutely not. Why in the world would she be wrong to feel a threat? The same people who are arguing that women ought to be afraid of toxic masculinity are arguing that a man can be a woman. How is that even logically coherent? Mm. I mean, are you saying that my wife is the problem in this situation because she feels a threat that she perceives from a biological male who walks in because he subjectively defines himself as female? I don't see that as as logical in any way. To counter that, in Erewhon, right? The, the mecca of all, yeah. of all change. Do you yeah. know Erwan, Ben? Do you uh, know I do not. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's super high-end yeah, grocery it's store. It's a very interesting I call it a grocer, so, not even a grocery grocer, store. Yeah. So to counter that point, when you walk into the bathrooms at Erwan, I don't know if you guys have ever been in there, it's gender neutral, right? So the sinks are all shared, but the actual toilets all have doors on them where it's locked. So in a traditional sense of let's segregate the bathrooms, so there's two separate entire rooms. If we have one room, but the toilets are all locked off, I, you, you feel pretty safe. Yeah, that, that's, a different, that's a different scenario. So that's, safety, that's what I'm getting at, though. I think when we have, have a single stall bathroom, I, I don't see why it would have to be gender segregated. Or even right. just a single bathroom. But that's yeah. where the conversation can come <sighs> into play. Me, because I've, I've said this, but I can't poop in front of girls. Not even in front no, of girls. No, no, it's, it's, it's a vicinity thing. Well, it's a have you ever, situation. Yeah, but you've like, never even tried pooping in front of a maybe girl. You don't even know what that's like. It's true. You have no idea. It's true. I mean, maybe it makes you, maybe it helps you poop. It could. It could. Who knows? See, my my only point is, I think when when we like, you know, lock (laughs) it away, and I'm 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 with you. I feel you, but I think when we lock it away and say, um, you know, there's no like improvements we can make to that system. That's where it can kind of become very segregating. No, I mean, you know, frankly, if you want to come up with solutions that make sense, all for it. You want to you want to create. I mean, for sure. I think if you want to create bathrooms where the the Frankly, I prefer this, right? I mean, bathrooms where the doors are floor to ceiling, great. I mean, more privacy in bathrooms. Yeah, that's what they are. I, I, the no doors problem. are floor to ceiling. Oh, oh really? Yeah, so you're Stilts. in a locked oh, off room. Nobody can oh. smell your poo. It's a it's a beautiful place, all right? It's a that's great, like it's a a great dream, location. That's like a dream world for you. I'm with you. Yeah, that's I a good- I don't know, bro. Do you, yeah. 
Do you ever, uh, are you more worried? This is a thing I, I come to a lot. I am, I am completely at peace with the majority of new age uh, identification systems with gay marriage. With Like I'm at, at peace with it. I love it. I support it. I'm a huge fan. The, where I start to worry a little bit is, um, are you more worried about where we are now or where this potentially leads? Uh, well, I think that we are getting very close to where it potentially leads. So I, I was in favor of the legalization of same-sex marriage before Obergefell. Um, and the reason I was is not because I'm not a traditional marriage advocate. Like I think that traditional marriage and same-sex marriage were designed for different purposes. I think traditional marriage was designed for the creation and rearing of children, whereas same-sex marriage obviously is not primarily designed for that for biological reasons. It's designed for two people who love each other to live with one another. That's fine. The, the problem that I see is that once you start encoding that in state law, it, the next move is to call everyone who disagrees with that, who, who agrees with that distinction, a bigot, and then to remove their tax-exempt status from them. So to take an example, I think- That's what I was talking about. Right, so to, to take an example, this is obviously happening right now. There's a baker in Colorado. The baker in Colorado is a religious Christian. And he says, listen, you want to be same-sex married? Fine, that's cool, do what you want. I am not going to participate personally in a same-sex marriage. So I will bake you a cake. You're a gay man, you walk in, you want a cake? I'll bake you a cake. Fine, no problem. You want me to celebrate your same-sex marriage. My religious principles prevent me from doing that because I think this is a sin. Now, there are folks who would like, I mean, this is an actual case. They tried to sue him. He was fined hundreds of thousands of dollars. They tried to destroy his business. Why? Because the idea is that he's now discriminating because what we have to do is force him to participate in something that he believes violates his religious precepts. Now, as somebody who's libertarian, I find this very scary. I think that people should basically be allowed to do whatever they want. I don't owe you a duty to bake you a cake. You don't like my way of baking a cake, go find some other baker. There are plenty of bakers. Many of them are gay. Like it's not hard to find people who will bake you a wedding cake, right? This is, this is very silly. But there is this prevailing sentiment in American life now that if I do something that you don't like, if you don't approve of my viewpoint or my action, on that you have no right from me. But if you don't like how I'm pursuing my business, now you have the right to point the government gun at me. My basic rule of thumb when it comes to government is if I don't owe you anything, right? If, I, if, if you don't have a claim on me, and yet you are pointing a government gun at me, you are the bad guy in the scenario. If I don't have a claim on your money, but I point a gun at you and I say, give me your money, I'm the bad guy in that scenario. If I say to you that you owe me, you have to, tonight, you have to make me dinner and you don't want to make me dinner. And so I get the government to point a gun at you and make me dinner. I think that you're the bad guy in this scenario. So I don't have to agree with how the person operates their business. But the minute that I start saying my failure to agree with how you operate your business is an excuse for me to put a government gun in your face and then force you to do something, then I think that we're in very, very dangerous territory. Do you see the? Do you see any echoes of the past here, or do, or do you once again say that there are vast differences between a same-sex marriage situation and a situation that we dealt with during the segregated forties, fifties? I mean, I think there are pretty significant differences between again the very nature of same-sex marriage and traditional marriage. So I see, you know, pretty significant differentials in that. Whereas a male, a marriage between two white people and a white and a black person, I don't see any difference at all because skin color is irrelevant to the operation of the marriage, obviously not quite the same thing when you're talking about the, the biology of the people who are involved and particularly the reproductive parts, right? I mean, this is, this, that's really what we're talking about. But when you are talking about, do I think that, that businesses should be allowed to be bad, right? To do bad things that I don't like. The answer is I do think they should be allowed to do bad things that I don't like so long as they're not forcing me to do anything. So I'm actually more libertarian than, than a lot of libertarians are on these issues. Like, I think that the best solution to a discriminatory, let's take the worst case scenario, right? You got a business and they say, I'm not serving black folks today. 
or ever. I'm a racist. I'm not serving black folks today. That's their, that's their case. My argument is that it is not the government's business to force that person to serve black folks. That person should be boycotted. We should never go to his store. We should wreck his business by, by opening up a store across the street that services black folks. That you don't actually want a government big enough to do the things that you like because it may turn out that the people who control that government are doing things that you don't like. Mm. But right? are you are you cool with the cancel culture or the 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 woke Twitter left coming together to boycott a business based on their non-desire to serve transgenders or gay couples? They have a hundred percent right to do that. Okay. They have a hundred percent right to do that. I may disagree with the boycott. Right. I may I may think the boycott is bad. based on your based on your based on my political yeah, yeah, sure, belief, sure, right? sure. but they have every right to do that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think that that's a good part of American discourse. Yeah. So you would applaud Meaning, you would applaud. I think. That. And so I like take take a, a race example, because, again, I think these are the best examples because they're the most obvious morally. Uh, so in 1960, the Woolworths was a segregated was a segregated outlet, a segregated restaurant. And a bunch of black students, including James Meredith, went into the Woolworths and they sat at the counter and they were viciously treated and people poured drinks on them. They treated them like garbage. It became a national media story and Woolworths voluntarily desegregated. I think that's great. I think that's great. I think that's the way that things should work. So if you wanted to go to that bakery that didn't, that didn't participate in the same-sex wedding, you say, listen, I, and I'm not going to go to that bakery. My friends who love same-sex marriage aren't going to go to that bakery. No, no gay person I know is going to go to that bakery. Totally your prerogative. Totally your prerogative. But to point the government gun at that guy and say, you must service the same-sex wedding, that I got a problem with because then you get into this really weird situation where let's say that I walk into a gay bakery and I say, you know what I would love? I would love for you to make a cake that has Leviticus 1822 on it, right? That is the verse in Leviticus that talks about the so-called abomination of, of homosexuality, mm-hmm. right? I, I walk into a gay baker and I say, I want that on a cake right now. You put it on a cake right now or I'm going to sue you. Do you really want that lawsuit to win? I don't want that lawsuit to win. Right. right? I don't think that that guy has any obligation to bake me a cake. Yep. And I don't think I have any obligation to bake, bake anybody else a cake. Right? I think that we, but again, this goes back to if you think that the people in your community are bad people, then you want the government to force them to do all the things that you want them to do. If you think that they're basically good people and you have disagreements about this sort of stuff, then you can live with the fact that there's a baker who lives down the street who may think that you're involved in sin. Like, right. frankly, I, I've always been puzzled. There, there is this wide gap between people who, are, who understand the religious conception of sin and people who are irreligious trying to see what religious people think like about sin. People who aren't religious, people who are secular, when they think of religious people thinking about sin, they think, oh, those religious people are so judgmental. They're sitting around all day just sitting around going, oh, you're a bad person because you sin. I do not know a religious person who does not believe that they themselves sin, who does not believe there are a wide variety of sins, who does not believe that it is imperative for them to try and avoid sin, but that you fall short. Right. Everyone falls short of the grace of God. Right. right like th- right. this is so I can think something is a sin. I can also think that somebody has a right to commit that sin. Right. I'm again, I'm not anti same sex marriage from a governmental perspective. I don't think you should force my synagogue to perform one. But I don't think that the government should should stop gay people from getting married in any way or something like that. So it sounds like it sounds like number Leave two, each other alone. Leave each other alone. Right. It sounds like number two on your list would be it, it's it almost boils down to big government. So we had we had cancel culture and and this SJW wave. We've got big government, and then what is what does number three feel like to you? I, I think that number three is lack of ability to to look into the future at all, to think about consequences of any of the things that we do. So we tend to do the thing that is convenient to us. This is true, obviously, when it comes to government policy. On the left, I think people see it when it comes to climate change more, but on the right, when it comes to government spending, there, there's no capacity to see five minutes beyond our own nose. Right? We, we just don't think about what's going to happen 10 years in the future. And we tend to think that whatever we believe 
is the most right thing that has ever been in history, and you can just willy-nilly make changes to the system that pre-exists, and everything will be fine. This is scary to me. Like, not, not understanding how history has progressed to where we are. There's this belief that we can just shape the system, change it in dramatic ways, and everything will be good from there on in. And that demonstrates a true lack of respect for the people who came before you. Because the fact is, you know, we, we live in this, this pathetically self-aggrandizing and arrogant world where people sit around, they're like, Thomas Jefferson, really bad guy because he held slaves, right? You're like, yeah, slavery was really bad. And like, he was probably raping Sally Hemings. I mean, just really bad, bad, bad stuff. And like, well, I'm smarter than Thomas Jefferson. So all that stuff in the Declaration of Independence, I mean, I'm smarter than he was. The answer is you were not smarter than Thomas Jefferson. You're not a product of Thomas Jefferson's time. You didn't live in 1770. Do you you, you think live that, in 2019. And if you think that you would have thought like you think in 2019 and 1770, you're full of crap. Do you think that thought pattern, that ideology sets us up to kind of be stuck in this impasse that I talk about where people are un- unwilling to create uh, change or create waves in order to prepare for something like Spencer believes is a massive problem, which is climate change. And and I've heard some of your thoughts on climate change. I'd like to hear more of them today. But do you sure. think, you know, not believing that that, you know, people are certain people can use examples from the past and make better decisions forward facing without that data that guarantees it moving forward. Do you think that puts us in a bad place where we're not preparing for something that some people are saying is guaranteed to happen? Well, again, I think the data should always be the foundation of any political argument and most arguments that you make generally. In fact, the person who's trying to stop you from disseminating data is usually the problem in the conversation. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you do see this on a variety of levels. You've seen certain studies shut down because they're politically incorrect when it comes to sexuality. You've seen them shut down on the right when it comes to climate change. I don't like any of that stuff. More information is better, right? I mean, more data is better. So all of that... I'll, you know, all of that is good. But to go back to sort of the, the, the general point that I'm making about the past, you, we have to treat the past with enough respect to try and keep the stuff that was good while getting rid of the stuff that was bad. And instead, it's like we want to remake the world every generation. And that is a huge mistake. You know, G.K. Chesterton, this famous Catholic theologian, uh, he, he famously suggested that the difference between sort of the left and the right politically is that if you're on the left and you come across a fence in the road and you don't know why it's there, it's just a fence in the middle of the road. What the hell is it doing there? Your first instinct is, I'm ripping out that fence. I don't know what the hell this is doing here. It's a, what is it doing? If you're on the right, your first instinct is, I don't know what this fence is doing here. I better go down to the library, <laughs> figure out what the fence is doing here. And then if it turns out that the fence isn't there for any reason, then we can talk about removing it. I, I think that that shouldn't be a left-right thing. I think that should be a reasonable person, not reasonable person thing. Meaning like we should just try and figure out exactly maybe why these social institutions were in place before we take a wrecking ball to them. But at the same time, you do have to have an eye to the future and you have to, you know, try and discern why we did stuff in the past a certain way. And maybe we did it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, and now that I was, has to that's change. what I was going to ask. Do you think, do you think at times both the right and left, but let's use the right for this example, finds out that that fence was actually mistakenly built in the middle of a main thoroughway and they say, we're still not ripping it out. Do you yeah, know what I'm saying? Sure. We are, we, we, we just because out of spite, and we talked about this earlier, out of spite for the left, we're going to keep that fence there. Yeah, I, mean, I, guess it, sure. I guess it happens on both sides. No, right? I, I think it does happen on both sides. I think that because the right inherently tends to look to the past more as a model, mm-hmm. and, the past, and, and the left tends to look at the past more as a model of what not to do, then there's just different levels of reluctance to get rid of the fence generally. Because very often on the right, what they will say is, okay, well, yeah, I, okay, so I still don't know why the fence is there, but I know that the fence has prevented... X, Y, and Z from happening. And if I remove the fence, I'm kind of afraid of what's going to happen. Meaning we know the past, we don't quite know the future. So we're hesitant to remove it, even if we don't know the exact reason behind it. Uh, So 
I guess what I would say is we have to treat the people who came before us with enough respect to try and get into their heads for a moment and say, okay, what were they thinking? Why was that wrong when it was wrong? So that we understand why it's wrong now. It's not just wrong because you feel like it's wrong today. Uh, and, and then when it comes to, you know, thinking of the future, then, then we have to do actual database thinking about what's going to happen down the road. And my, my problem with, with a lot of the climate change debate is that I don't think that on either side, there's an honest discussion going on. So on the right, I think that there are a lot of people I see who are like, well, I just don't think climate change is happening. I think that it's all BS. I think it's a giant Chinese hoax, as, as the president suggested. I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't think that's true. You know, I, I've talked to climate scientists from Caltech, and they know this stuff better than I do. And their suggestion is that the climate is going to warm somewhere between two degrees Celsius and six degrees Celsius by the end of the century. Now the question becomes, what sort of damage does that do and you actually can, and so here's where the left goes off the rails. So where, what the left does is they go, that means every major city in the United States will be underwater, undoubtedly. Also, the polar ice caps are going to melt, uncovering mammoths that have within them the dark plague, and that will wipe out all of humanity. It's like, well, we have to do some sort, like the, the kind of disaster talk, like if we don't get this done in 10 years, we're all going to die. No, we're not. We're not. And maybe the damage is worse than it would have been if we had not done it within 10 years, but we are not all going to die. This is a bunch of nonsense. Okay, some people will be badly affected by climate change. Other people's, actually, in the middle of the United States, weirdly enough, will be affected rather well by climate change because it turns out it's good for some growth of crops. Yeah. It, it will It will also- Andrew said So that. Ohio's just going to be kind of just sunbathing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll be, it'll yeah, be good to, yeah, listen, yeah. There's, a, there's a 13, you know, these sound like big numbers and they are big numbers, but the fact is that there's a 13 degree Celsius average temperature between Arizona and Minnesota. Right? I mean, like they, there are pretty wide climate variations that human beings can withstand. Also, my, we're talking about the course of the next century, meaning that yeah. when the left talks about this stuff like tomorrow, it's going to be like the day after tomorrow. There's going to be a big wave. It's going to hit New York. Dennis Quaid and Jake Gyllenhaal are going to be sliding through the ice, man. It's, gonna be like, uh, it's like, no, yeah, that's not what's going Jake. to happen. Over the, next, uh, over the next 100 years, there will be a gradual rise in sea levels. This will cause human beings to either build seawalls or try to develop technologies to suck carbon out of the air, which they are already trying to do, or they will get into geoengineering, firing sulfur into the air to create cloud cover and to lower the temperature, or they will start migrating away from these areas because why would you possibly stay in a place where you like you wouldn't buy an island like a small island outside of Belize right now that is one foot above sea level like that would be a stupid move for you right and, and and that's true over over time people adapt people mitigate people adjust now the William Nordhaus who's the Nobel Prize winning economist who won the Nobel Prize last year he has a really great book on this called Climate Casino he tries to analyze the level of economic risk that takes place over the course of the next century based on various kind of climate scenarios and what he basically suggests is. We're doing two degrees Celsius. It's going to happen. Nothing they're talking about can prevent it. He, he calls for a global carbon tax. Now, the problem with that as, as a political matter is that if you think China is signing on to a global carbon tax, you're out of your damn mind. Okay, China ain't doing it. China is in, a, is in a geopolitical confrontation with the United States right now. If you think they're willy-nilly going to lower their own economic growth rates in order to fight climate change rather than just piggybacking off of the United States and EU devastating their own economies to fight climate change, you're wrong. It's not going to happen. Okay, so, so whenever people talk, like I watched the seven-hour, seven-hour CNN <laughs> climate change town hall last night, and you get Democrats Jeez. saying things like, I'm going to ban fracking. Okay, well, let me explain. Natural gas is the sole reason that carbon emissions in the United States have dropped for the past four years and stabilized. Okay, it's the replacement of coal with natural gas. Fracking uncovers natural gas. Why are you trying to ban fracking? Yeah, but what's, Other, been, what's been like the ancillary side effect of fracking? We've seen it. I watched a documentary called Gasland that I talked about on HBO a few years back right. where the, the people in Pennsylvania are able to light their water on fire okay, as so it that, comes so out of their faucet. There are some significant questions about that documentary. But, <laughs> oh, beyond, oh, okay. but, be, but beyond that, the the 
question of carbon emissions, which is what we're talking about here, sure, sure you should take into account the other effects. When you say you're going to ban fracking in a time when the two best solutions to carbon emissions are nuclear power and fracking, and you're going to ban nuclear factories and fracking. So what's your, windmills? Okay, it's not going to do it. I'm sorry. Solar voltaic energy is not going to do it. The cost per unit on solar voltaic energy is something like 15 times the cost of, of natural gas. Yeah, I think the, the argument, though, is that if we did have more happen. strict regulations, the market could shift quicker. Right. You know, and like you have Tesla talking about how he could power the whole world with his gigafactories. And there are ways well, to Elon get Musk there quicker. Elon Musk says a lot of stuff. But, yeah. it, but <laughs> which which I, I wouldn't doubt him. I mean, for I, what he's able to do. I think I when you some of some of what Elon Musk <laughs> does. But, but, when, but when it comes to... The, this is the case for the carbon tax. The case for the carbon tax is that you're going to artificially boost the price of energy such that a lot of formerly non-competitive energy sources become economically competitive, right? That it still is really expensive to produce wind or solar, but now in comparison with gas, which you've artificially made expensive, then it's going to look cheaper than it was. Well, what if right? it, what if it, you know, theoretically, what if it scared people away a little bit from investing more and more and more energy into getting oil and, you know, burning fossil fuels. And it put much more of an opportunity cost on, you know, building solar, building alternative ways of energy where without that pressure, we're not going to switch anytime soon. You know, it's going to take a lot lot more time. So again, I, I think that the question is going to be, what is the worldwide efficacy of that versus faith in human technological ability? So right now, the United States is providing, excuse me, something around the order of 15% of global emissions. China is outstripping us by a factor of more than two in terms of their, their yearly yeah. global emissions. Yeah. So let's say that we, I mean, because unfortunately, environmental issues don't exist in a vacuum. Let's say that we cripple our economy or, or really hurt our economy. Because if you, if you do put on a carbon tax, it will hurt our economy. It will be passed on to consumers. The people who will pay that price are typically not at the upper end of the income spectrum. They're people who are middle class or lower class who are now paying more for the electricity because the vast majority of carbon emissions in the United States are, are not driven by cars. They're driven by industry and by, and by electricity. That, that represents about 60%. Mm-hmm. 50%, 50%. represents about 50% of all carbon emissions in the United States come from heavy industry and from electricity, which we all need, and the cost gets passed on to us. So assume there will be economic damage. Like, let's, let's be realistic about the assessments. When you hear people say, we're going to invest trillions of dollars, it's going to create tens of millions of new jobs, bullcrap. Okay, if the government could create billions of new jobs and millions of new jobs just by throwing money at it, Everything would be hunky dory. Everything be, that was called communism. They tried it; it failed. Okay, and like you can't. Of course, you're talking about your favorite person of all time, AOC, right? And her Green New Deal. Well, her Green New Deal is insanity. I mean, they, they actually <laughs> assessed the cost of what she was talking about, and she was talking about a jobs guarantee for everybody, and she was talking about getting rid of jets, and she was talking about killing all the cows, and it was assessed by the Competitive Energy Institute at ninety three <laughs> trillion dollars over ten years. Okay, the entire GDP of the United States is not $93 trillion over 10 years. So that's, yeah. that's just patently insane. But So are you saying it's kind of jumping the gun then? It, well, it's what, what it's assuming saying, that you know, technology is not at that point yet. Well, what I'm saying is that you have to actually factor in the downside risk to what we are talking about, especially because if you want, let's say we want China and Brazil and India, which are increasing their carbon emissions right now, mm-hmm. to lower their carbon emissions. You have two choices. One, you can create a global carbon tax that damages their economy, damages our economy, but artificially raises the price of gas and oil so that people are going to invest in the kind of technologies you're talking about. Do you, the question is, is China, are China and Brazil going to go along with that? The answer is very largely no. 
then the other possibility is you actually allow them to economically grow. It turns out that people, as they get richer, care more about the environment. Yeah. When you're poor and you're worried about feeding your kids you really and you're burning dung shit. in the, right, you, you, don't, you don't care about climate change. You're yeah. like, okay, my kid's dying of dysentery here, man. Like, I yeah. don't care. I, I don't care at all. So, Partially, but, you know, being, I just went to the Amazon and, you know, a third option is not purchasing products that are condoning the destruction Boycott. of those forests. Right. So right? They, so because those people are getting very wealthy and they give less fucks about the environment well, as time goes on. So the so Brazil has actually this is about so if we're gonna talk about the Amazon fires, the Amazon fires this year are about the same level as they were in 2004. They're not wildly out of tune over the mm-hmm. past 10 years. Yeah, so yeah. Th- it's been a little exaggerated in terms of the threat to actual rainforest. But with that said I guess that there, there are three ways. The way the, we, way the North has. We got an angry we got dog a bit of a situation. Oh, yeah. problem here. Yeah, well, she, we have a lion I, in the house, and she gets angry. She's <laughs> not a fan of Bolsonaro at all, dude. Yeah. Huge anti. Yeah. She, was, she was campaigning to go to the Amazon, but we had to remind her she's a Tibetan mastiff. <laughs> The, so I, I think that when, when it comes to when it comes to so the way Nordhaus puts it, and again I like him because he's an economist trying to analyze what's what's realistic. He says there are three ways to deal with climate change. There's adaptation. There's mitigation. And then, there, and then there is sort of technological solutions. Mitigation would be carbon taxes, right? trying to prevent the expulsion of carbon into the air. Adaptation is you build seawalls, you move, right? we adapt. Yeah. And then there is technological change, which is basically what has saved humanity time and time again. It's why there are 8 billion yeah. people on the planet and we're all living better than ever. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the next century, he is pointing out that the world will get richer. Like things are not going to freeze in place. The world will get richer. There will be more people who are capable of moving. The, the real threats to the planet in terms of climate change are not actually to human beings. They're more to just like the actual environment. They're, mm-hmm. they're more to the acidification of the oceans and the killing of the coral reefs, right? It's, it's, what about it, animals? Um, well, he <clears throat> says that the number of, of animal extinctions is a little exaggerated in terms of people have been sort of counting subspecies as species. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you care about that, of course, that's going to have an what impact. I- Go ahead. What are you going to say? Just, just, do, you th- do you think we need sharks? All right, that's exactly where <laughs> I was going. So, so by the way, at some point here, and I know Dylan's pushing us towards it. I, I would love to spend a little bit of time like humanizing Ben Shapiro and, and like talk <laughs> about sure some that's possible, but no, no, possible. We, no, we could do, we have we, some we great got questions some stuff, but, And I want to maybe kick that off by asking you if you could save five animals. <laughs> that's it, by the way. That's it. Oh, what would man. the five animals be? So I am not an animal person. So it's, it, I didn't grow up with dogs. So it's, okay. so my wife is totally trying to get me into getting a dog right now. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm open to it. I mean, for security reasons and also because my kids would love it. So Dogs. I like horses. Horses are super useful. Mm. Big fan of horses. Yeah, you can ride on uh, places. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. They used to power the entire world. They're yeah, too. Yeah. Right? I mean, I like I like the ones that I eat, right? I mean, I like chickens. I like cows. Okay. Big, big fan, big so fan of chickens and cows. Um, and- uh, Pull, pull an exotic here. Come on. You got some? Man, <laughs> I'd be like I'm, I'm not an animal. Like a, like a bangle tiger? Again, like again like my, my diet, I, I keep kosher. It's pretty restrictive. So basically, it's beef and chicken and fish. So that's pretty much it, right? Like, okay. And only kosher types of fish, because I don't, I mean, the others I can't eat. So, right, I mean, right. I'm, I'm the, the, I'm, I'm pretty user friendly when it comes to the animal. Just so you know, community. Spencer chose <laughs> sharks, <laughs> birds, and frogs. frogs. Wait, there, no, there's one. Oh, well, it's and, because I don't eat them. So, why, you know, like, I think sharks are lit. Well, you eat, They're really cool. you eat chicken eggs. You eat the egg before it even gets a chance to be a chicken. It does not become a chicken, though, all the time. It true. has to be fertilized. Your stomach is a Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood. No, it's not. You, <laughs> are, <laughs> you are an abortion <laughs> factory for chickens. No, yes, it are. is not. We had this talk just before. Chickens lay eggs no matter what. Unless they're fertilized, they won't hatch. Ben, what's your favorite cereal? Uh, okay, going to go off the board here. You ready for this? Chris Bex. 
Whoa. Whoa. Is that the square? Wow. The no, 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 the, the, the hexagons, right? The hexagons? Yeah, that's, that, that's right. They're, they're the wow. ones that, that they're, they're wow. half corn checks and half rice checks. I, I, and they're I, unavailable yes. anywhere. And I ordered them in bulk from, from Amazon. Really? Yeah, no, I, I'm not kidding you. I don't this know why that slightly doesn't surprise doesn't me. Doesn't surprise me. I don't me. know yes. why. Because it's the most boring, obnoxious cereal <laughs> my, in the world. That would my, be it right there. My, my, dad, my dad was a fan of these. Always had the crispy nice. slider. Oh, yeah, that's solid nice. stuff right what there. What do you put in it? Do you put, do you drink? milk. Just milk. Dairy milk. Yeah, dairy milk. Okay. Hold on a sec. So where do you where do you live right now? Are you? I mean, gosh, I don't give really me a state. Say, give me a state. California. Okay, you're in yeah. California. That is a mortal sin in California to drink milk. Uh, dairy milk. Dairy you milk. are a. You oh, are. Yeah. You can. You can still clip your nails in public places. <laughs> you can eat a steak on a school bus. If as soon as you break that dairy milk out. You are a caveman, a sinner, and just a, a a murderer at that point. Because listen, I drink dairy milk, and people think I am out do of you? my fucking mind. You actually yes. do? I didn't know. I have that. chocolate milk Still once to this day. Every I can't believe days. it. I can't wow. believe. It. No, I just. Why would you not? It's one of God's great creations. <laughs> I just like almond. I just like almond milk better. You like it better. Oh, you're like so full of shit, dude. You don't like it better. You're just saying that. Did I get LA'd? Yo, I might have gotten. No, 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 no. I wear rings. <laughs> I wear rings now, dude. There's like, a big crowd I have a Laura there. Piana hat. Like, there's there's a big <laughs> crowd out Jeff, there that respects Jeff, almond milk. Jeff was me. telling me, bro. Like, nah. you well, did. LA changed me. Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, I do almond milk and oat milk now. That's the next one. Oat milk. Oat milk. propaganda. Oats make milk. Now you know. The propaganda, right. he said. Ben, when was your first kiss? <laughs> oh, um, I believe it was with my wife. Whoa! Whoa! Holy shit. Yeah, I was a virgin until marriage. And I, I was wow. married at 24. My wife was 20. And she was my first serious girlfriend. Wow. So, unless I missed something. No, I'm, It was that, but it's... <laughs> I feel like I'm I would have remembered it, but yes, that, that, yes, I am... Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, we, we dated for three and a half months. We married for 11 years. We got two kids. You only I mean, dated for three and a half months? Yeah, How man. did you know? How did you know that she was the one? Well, number one, she's incredibly hot. Number two, I mean, come on. But beyond that, uh, she, the, 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 the fundamental thing that, is different about dating when you're orthodox is obviously you're dating for marriage. So for, so for me, it uh, was, you're, you're looking for shared values. You're, you're, I mean, we were talking about kids, like what, how you would raise kids on the first date. And you do that on normal first dates I, in the orthodox I community. do that more so as a strategy to uh, give them hope. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh. oh, I mean, hey. You're sick. Well, yes, but you're also, twisted. yes, but also like, <laughs> Don't we all love to fantasize about what could be, huh? Uh, <laughs> like, like, don't tell me you haven't gone on a first date and you're like, yo, how crazy would it be if we got married? I generally don't kids? say that. Okay. This is the, and this is our first date and we get to tell them this story. Right, but I don't do it to give them hope. I'm like making sure this oh, yeah, chick is um, like not crazy. Nah, I'm, a, I'm, a sicko, <laughs> bro. I'm a sick fuck. Do you, do you anyway. think that that uh, allegiance to your, uh, your, your values on the religious side um, gives you a, a, a more of a, ground to stand on from a debate standpoint. And also I want to ask you as properly as possible about the yarmulke. Okay. And yeah. about, and about There's nothing improper about asking okay, about the okay. cool. And do, yeah. do you think that it ever provides that you, you ever find yourself utilizing uh, either the yarmulke or your religion as a, as a fallback when you find yourself in a defensive stance? I mean, I hope not. Okay. I hope not. It's, it's a bad argument. Like I, I don't cite the Bible as a, as a source for my arguments. And if I did, I feel like it's a bad argument because the person I'm talking with rarely shares that frame of reference. So what, what difference would it make? I think right. here's, he's saying like, so on the hierarchy, 
I think straight white Jew is just slightly above straight white Christian. Yeah, you got us. We're at the bottom. We're fucked. We defeat you, but only but only very, well, very, very marginal. Like, yeah. We're wedged between back, back successful Asians yeah. and white men. This is this is right. We can't find Indian this hierarchy, hierarchy, by the way. We, 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 oh, I mean, I can draw it for you. I mean, I can what, put it on like it, a, a napkin. What, yeah. what is it? It's. A, I mean, it, it varies based on period, but, but right now it would probably be transgender folks and then gay folks and then black folks and then Latinos and then women and then and then Asians and then Jews and then white people. Mm, yeah. Right. I mean, that, that, that's pretty much how it goes in terms of like the privilege hierarchy. They just reverse that and call it the privilege hierarchy. So that really is not saying anything super controversial. They would say that in yeah. terms of privilege, those people at the bottom that I'm putting there are actually at the top because they're the most privileged people in America and the people at the bottom right now are transgender. The, the least privileged people are transgenders. That's that's how folks- We, we took questions from Twitter uh, and one, one of the girls uh, said, um, I'm worried to watch this. And she said, just make sure he checks his privilege. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so sick of that shit. I'm sorry. Like, it, it, like if you want to tell me that I am privileged, there are certain ways in which I am privileged. There are certain ways in which we are all privileged, frankly. Mm -hmm. And the level of privilege obviously differs by your life story, right? Like, I thank God. My biggest privilege, I grew up in a stable two-parent household. That is my number one privilege. My parents are wonderful, wonderful people, right? That is my number one privilege. And I grew up in a pretty solidly middle-class household for most of my childhood. I mean, when I was, until I was 11, we were living in like an 1100 square foot house. I have three younger sisters. I shared a room with all of my siblings and we had one bathroom for six people. So it wasn't like we grew up loaded or anything, but it is a privilege to live with two parents who love you, take care of you, provide for you, share a set of values. Is with that you. the greatest privilege? And, and it is, it is do, the most important privilege do you in America. Think it's, do you think it could in some ways be the biggest solution to a lot of the problems that we uh, have in absolutely. the country? Absolutely. I think it is the biggest solution to most of the problems that, that folks have in the country right now. I mean, it, as I said before, it is the same... Growing up with a single mom, and this is not a rip on single moms, this is just a, a fact of life, is the single best predictor of intergenerational poverty in America right now. Meaning that you're, you're growing up with one income and a mom who's at work all the time isn't there to take care of you as much. I mean, obviously, I, I had it easy from the parental perspective. I had it easy in the sense that I grew up in a free country where I can practice my religion openly and I, I can wear a kippah and I can be successful and, and all that's wonderful, right? I, I grew up you know, as I say, middle class and then probably upper middle class as we got a little older, my parents could afford to put me into a private day school, right? I mean, there's certain privileges that I have had. Now, how much of that is due to my victimization of others? None, okay? I didn't, none of those things are about me victimizing anybody else or my parents victimizing anybody else. And I'm really sick of this nonsense where because I acknowledge that I have been privileged to have good things happen to me in my life, that that is because I victimized somebody else. My success does not come at the expense of your failure. And this, this basic notion is deeply disturbing and divisive and ugly. Okay, the fact is that if you can point out a place where I hurt somebody and I kept somebody down, then that's me doing something wrong. But if you're saying that just by dint of the fact that I grew up in a two-parent household, that I've somehow victimized you, go F yourself, man. That's, mm -hmm. that's not a thing. Can we, are you willing to agree that, use the word failure, are you willing to agree that there is, uh, on the flip side of the spectrum, I don't some, mean non, some non-privileged? Uh, of course. I mean, of course. And when I say failure, and who are, and who I, are, I don't mean my, I don't mean like your chosen failure right. by that. I just mean like in the contrast between the word success and failure. But mm -hmm. when, but obviously, okay. So examples of non-privilege, you grew up in a single mother household. Your dad wasn't around. Somebody went to jail. You grew up in a poor area. You had less educational opportunities because the schools suck. You have a health problem, right? There are all sorts of things that crop up in people's lives. And of course, those are areas of difficulty, and we should be looking to help our neighbors. I mean, I give a lot of charity specifically for this reason, because we should be looking to help our neighbors and create institutions that help people out. 
But that is not the same as saying that somebody who is successful is therefore guilty of doing something. Mm. And that, that's what the, the, the privilege, right. the, the woke privilege brigade is all about. It's not about how do we help the person at the bottom? How do we help the person who's had a setback? It's about how do we punish the person at the top and blame them for the setback for the person at the yeah, bottom? Seen, and that I've is a that. bunch of yes. horse shit. Yes. Okay, Bill Gates is not rich because you are poor. Bill Gates is rich because Bill Gates provided a product that millions of Americans bought and it made their lives better. The real problem is that you're poor. And so the question is, that's not, and that's not a problem with you, obviously. Maybe it is. Maybe you made bad decisions, but maybe it's not. The question is, how do we make you not poor, right? How do we get you to make decisions that are better? How do we help you overcome things that were not your decision, right? It seems to me, this is why the whole conversation about income inequality to me is such nonsense. The question is not who's, are the rich richer and the poor are poorer? The question is, why are the poor poor and how do we make them richer? But why, people, why should I possibly people, care that you make a lot of money? Like, this is absurd to trying, me. I've in my life made some money and I've made more money and I made a lot of money. And guess what? I was the same human being. It didn't make me innately a worse person now that my income level is higher. And it didn't make me innately more generous or wonderful when I was poor. This is a bunch of nonsense. Are, are the rich doing enough to <clears throat> start to mitigate or uh, work to help the socioeconomic um, issues that are causing those problems so that the poor can become richer. Do I mean, on a, on a tax level, a hundred percent on a tax level, the rich are, are what about on like an education level. So, on, on, like a, so on, an, on an education level, the problem is not the amount of money that is being poured into the schools. The problem is lack of school choice. I mean, you know, who used to agree with this was Elizabeth Warren right? in 2003, mm-hmm. she wrote a book called the two income trap. And in that book, Elizabeth Warren said that one of the big problems in America is that if you're stuck in a crap school district and you can't move your kid, you're stuck in a crap school district and you can't move your kid and you can't afford to move to the suburbs because you're poor, right? So what do we do? Well, the answer would be that we give you some sort of school voucher so you can move your kid out of the crap school and into a better school, right? I'm all for solutions But like wouldn't that. everybody then just move their kid out of the crap school and into the better school? Well, and then when you just have crap yes, schools in the suburbs? Well no, well, no, because if the, the question is what made the crap school a crap school? Was, it, yeah. was the crap school a crap school because the parents' population was not doing enough, in which case it won't matter where you move your kids, or was the crap school a crap school, this is the supposition, because the teachers were not as good, because it was right. underfunded, because it was not run well, because the administration was a problem, because the rules were set differently. Right? So, it, so it allows that change, right? Is yeah, what you're I, talking I, about more because, freedom is better. More choice yeah. is better. Right? Yeah. This, is, this is a good thing, right? It so, forces those systems to have to adapt and change. This is Spencer's leaving. specialty. He's, he's been working at an education doc for the past six years. He's yeah. about to do a cross-country tour. He's met with some of the biggest educators, legislators in the education space. So this is this is right up his alley. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, this, is, this is super important stuff. I mean, when yeah, you're talking about increasing opportunity for people, the, the fundamental thing that you can do is stop trapping them in systems that are failing. Mm-hmm. And this is why it, it's, it drives me nuts when, I don't know if you've been watching what's been happening in New York right now with Bill de Blasio and the education system and the push by the New York Times to shut down a lot of the, the, the kind of gifted programs in New York mm-hmm. because they say, well, not enough minority kids are getting into the gifted programs, so shut down the gifted programs. It's like, why would you shut down the gifted programs? Why not focus on making the other schools non-garbage? Right. How about that? Like, why are, why are we taking the schools that are doing well and we're like, well, shut those down because <laughs> they're not diverse enough and the schools that are more diverse those are garbage. So we'll just put all those other kids back in the garbage schools and then everything is fine. So that, you didn't like, heal anything. It's almost doing? exemplary of the system of like t- higher taxation on wealthy. It's, it feels like it just blends down right to that kind of program. Like it feels very similar, like penalizing yeah. those that are performing better in a way to help the lower performers. I mean, yeah. the, the truth is that the United States tax system, the lie that the rich don't pay their fair share in America is a lie. It is an absolute abject, ridiculous lie. The United States has the most progressive ind- individual income tax system in the West, it's not close. We have a much more progressive individual income tax system than anybody in Europe. Why? Because the taxes in Europe are sky high for people in the middle class. If you're making above 60 grand in Denmark, you're paying like 60% of your money in taxes. Yeah. Okay, in the United States, you really don't start paying heavy taxation until you make six figures. 
And then once you get up into the upper levels, you're paying like 50% of all the money that comes in, right? Now, to me, does that spell the rich somehow screwing the poor? Or does that sound more like the rich are footing nearly in the entire bill for everything? The tax burden in the United States is wildly disproportionately placed on people who are at the top of the in- income spectrum. So now, why, why I may think the- that is wrong, but the, but the and I, I do think that's wrong, actually. But the, it, it certainly puts the lie to the idea that the rich aren't paying their fair share. I mean, I don't know how you're defining fair share, but when you pay 95% of all the net revenue to the government after after you take out the benefits that you also receive from the government because the rich don't get any benefits. And if you're middle class, you do get some ben- government benefits depending on the governmental programs you're taking advantage of. According to the American Enterprise Institute, I don't know what the fair share looks like if you're paying like virtually all of the tax burden. It's kind of crazy. Hmm. I was just going to say, why, why are so many people so pissed about that then? You because know? it's always easy to be pissed at the person who's making a lot of money and to suggest that if you had his money, you'd be better off. I mean, I think that human beings are venal. I think that they're venal when they're rich. I think they're venal when they're poor. I think we're greedy when we're rich. I think we're greedy when we're poor. I don't think money makes people better. I don't think lack of money makes people worse. I think that human beings are innately flawed. I think we are sinful creatures. I think that we are nasty and greedy. I think we're also capable of doing incredible things. So money amplifies. Yeah, well, that's certainly true, right? I mean, I know a lot of wealthy people. And if I knew them before they were wealthy, if they were nice before they were wealthy, now that they're wealthy, Many of them are much nicer because they have more ability to, to, do, to nice. do nice things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if they were assholes before they were wealthy, they are massive assholes now that they're wealthy, <laughs> right? I mean, it doesn't money money just exacerbates. There, there's a there's a, a phrase in Hebrew uh, that you only know somebody, and the, the phrase in Hebrew is bikiso bikaso bikoso, which means in when he's rich, bikiso is in his pocket, bikaso in his anger, or when he's drunk, bikoso. Like the, that's the only time you actually know somebody right. is, is is when they have one of those three things. I think mean, that's fairly true. Uh. And what's the happiest moment you've ever had in your life? Well, I mean, I have kids, so it's it's obviously the stock answer. I mean, when, Damn, when you're, I when, thought you were going to go with impulsive. <laughs> well, I really did. I mean, it is a little fucked up. None of you guys have kids, right? That you know about? No, right? but, <laughs> no. Logan's on a Logan's on a quest. Mike might have one floating around. It's we, potent, we, yeah, potentially, it's I don't we know. I want a kid, but it is, know, it is it is unbelievable. What I mean, having it, a kid? Oh, yeah. It's the, can't, it's you the, can't, look, you can't tell me this, man, because I I really do want a kid. Okay, so you know what's cooler than family channels on YouTube? Single dad channels. <laughs> Wait, is that a fa- Are there examples of it? Bruh, young single dad. Like, yo, Does Ace Family? Mad respect. Austin, you know I love you, but young single dad channels. But is, who's doing it is I what mean, I'm saying. I mean, you're doing it. I'm working on it. So I just, watch but you're not a single dad. Watch as I lecture you guys. You ready? Okay. Okay, because that's what I come here to do. Okay. And so, so here <laughs> it is. Hey, the, the more responsibility you take on in the life, the better a person you'll become. Okay, when you are a, when you are a, when you're single, and, and it also, it also, really does expand your horizons in terms of emotional yep. ability. Like what I always say is when you're single, your range of happiness goes from like a nine to a two, right? Like a low is like a two and a high is a nine. Then you get married and your high is like a 20 and your low is a negative 20 because when something happens to your spouse, it's worse than even than when it happens to you. Yeah. And then when you have kids, all boundaries are removed. Okay. The best things that ever happen to you in life will be with your kids and the worst things that ever happen to you in life will be mm. with your kids and it's all in one package. But People in today's society keep saying, like, I don't want to take on responsibility until I'm ready for it. The answer is take on responsibility now, and then you become ready for it. Because nobody has ever been ready for the responsibility. Yeah. Yo, I've said all this. <laughs> this is the exact rationale I'm using. Like, every, yo, you're not ready to have a kid. I get it. But is anyone really ever ready for anything? And also, if I were to just pop out a quick bib, something, <laughs> something about someone's life. How are you going to do that, man? I mean, I, I, I assume will, there's someone else involved. Well, but. yeah, Hopefully. Well, no, be honest with him. I'm working on a scrotum baby, if I'm being honest. He wants a vessel. What? 
What? <laughs> now we can't say the truth. He wants to, he's been looking it's, for a vessel. It's not just a vessel, dude. <laughs> Remember that whole thing I said about vessel. a privilege being a two parent family? Remember that, that whole yeah. thing like just a minute ago? Yeah. Yeah. You really fucked that part up. Dude. <laughs> he said that's the biggest problem. You can't be a single dad because then you got issues. No, no. I, I'm going to be a single dad. I have uh, two dogs and I have a child. I Are you just saying that because of your situation growing up? You didn't have the ultimate privilege. Bro, yeah. Spence is not, see, now you're affecting I'm me. sorry, man. That was just bad. I shouldn't have done that. Fine. <laughs> who's, your, who's your childhood hero, Ben? Ooh, um, well, I mean, aside from immediate family members. So when I grew up, uh, I was a big history buff. And so every Halloween, I would dress up as John Adams because my I, I love it. Nice. Oh yeah, nice. have you ever seen the movie Incredible? Who's, Incredible. Who, I mean, look, I, I'm I'm right out of the playbook, man. I is, mean, there like, yeah. is, there, is there a photo of this floating around? Oh yeah, that's oh, yeah. Pure John see, that's Adams. The thing, and they it on see, that's the thing you yeah. got to respect about Ben is like he's not he's not putting on some show. This is this is Ben, dude. He, he I am just this irritating. Like, I mean, like no, not even that. It's yeah. just I, you wonder why I married my wife in three and a half months. She's the only person who can stand me. <laughs> And then I produce babies just so I can have friends. That's pretty much the story right there. <laughs> the kids are your homies. Do, is is the reason why uh, is the reason why people aren't going into that um, situation where they're taking on more responsibility? Is it because of this thought that they're not ready for it? Is that the more um, the more prevalent reason, or is it because simply put, we've entered a time, you know, just short of the four horsemen, where people <laughs> just don't give a fuck about anything anymore. I mean, they, they I don't want to, they I don't want a spouse. They want to, they want to party and then they want to party some more. They want to have a lot of unprotected sex. They want right. booze. They want to do drugs and they want to tell people to fuck off and they want to be, you know, well, remember my, my predicted outcome. If you take on responsibility is that you'll be a better person. It's not that you'll be a happier person. Mm. Okay. And I think that a lot of people believe that they are going to be less happy if they take on more responsibility. And there's truth to that, right? I mean, I, I can't go out every night with my wife the way that I would if, Excuse me, if we didn't have kids. Um, but th- I think that a deeper level of happiness lies in living a good life. I mean, for, we're among men. So I think living a good, particularly for men, this is true. But I think it's true for women too. But it, it, to, for me, personally, living a life as a man, being a man is about taking on responsibility, fulfilling that responsibility. And then at the end of my life, recognizing that my, my duty was fulfilled. I fulfilled my potential because I fulfilled my duty. And I think that people are not concerned with that or they put it off and then very often it's too late or they've shaped their characters in ways that they can't unshape particularly easily. Taking on responsibility is is a massive decision, but it's also the kind of decision that changes you. And it should be inspiring to take on responsibility. I mean, frankly, you know, th- this is true in business. It's true in life. I mean, taking, like ditching, ditching an irresponsible life in favor of a responsible life. When When we talk about like the things that you like about the people that you like, it's usually because you feel like they do what they say they are going to do. They fulfill their obligations. They're reliable. They do their duty. And not only do they do, they, do, they feel comfortable in their own skin. I mean, that, that, that should be the goal. I think happiness lies, I mean, I say this in my book, but I think happiness does lie in having a purpose in your life. And purposelessness leads to depression, leads mm. to anxiety. Yeah. I mean, there are pretty yeah. good studies that show this. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I spent a lot of my initial time on camera being this wild man. In a lot of ways, I still am, but I was the party guy. And, and we just took up this uh, sobriety for him, it's a necessity because he's got to get ready for boxing. For me, it was a challenge. I'm going to join my my best friend in this hunt for sobriety. And like 35 days in, and I've started to already like kind of reshape my narrative when it comes to the content I produce and talk more about mental health. And I've, I thought everyone was so interested in watching me be a jackass and like party and shit. And, I, and then I realized everybody was t- 50 times more interested in stuff that added value to their lives. And so it's, 
your point about responsibility is uh, it resonates. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. Just, I just don't, I'll, I'll see how long I can hold on to it <laughs> for. It's, tri- it's just a tricky, yeah. it's tricky. Yeah. I think the, the responsibility for me, like we've talked about, like I don't particularly want to have kids. And I think the responsibility is made up in my mission to give back to education, to give back to the world. And yeah. I'm taking that responsibility. So I think, you know, there are a lot of younger people out there that are choosing to not have kids and they're choosing to go those, those routes. And I think it's not necessarily because they're maybe avoiding that burden or that responsibility. I think it's more, there's more earthly responsibilities that we're feeling called to. As long as that involves you doing a thing and not requiring other things of other people, I think that's a great thing. I think that that people tend to use politics as a substitute. Like, well, you know, I gave it the office because I voted for higher taxes. That means that I'm a giving person. It's like, well, that wasn't something you did, right? Your vote was not a thing you did. You just Mm -hmm. voted, right? Your ideas were not a thing you did. That was, were just ideas. What did you do today to make the world a better place? to make your community better, to help somebody out. What did you do? Not what did you tell somebody else to do? Not what did you tweet to some jerk on Twitter? Mm. You didn't do anything. Okay, Twitter yeah. has never accomplished a thing. <laughs> and, and people tend to substitute, you know, all of, all of I, I, you know, I virtue signaled on Twitter and my points went up. As, Technically, as he's on, maybe it helped organize Arab Spring. May, maybe. Yeah, and then it turns out that all the people, but those were people who were actually living on the ground undertaking an, like a that, was, that was an actual operation. risk, yeah. right? I mean, if you're living in Tunisia and you're yeah. like, this dictator needs to go. You're undertaking a risk. If you're living in New York, like, yeah, that dictator does need to go. You're just an asshole. Nothing, yeah, nothing's yeah. going to happen. What, it, what Do you have uh, the fan stuff? Are we doing that still? Yeah, I mean, I have some fan questions here. And and I want to make sure, I think one of them is 2020, too. One, I had a question from uh, back home from someone. Can you ever see yourself running for a major political office? When I was younger, the answer was yes. Now it just looks like so terrible in every possible way. Like, I, 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 number one, I have kids, and that does actually change your math. Like, I don't want to spend my time on the road. Like, I, I used to speak uh, on a lot more college campuses. I speak on fewer. I want to be home with my kids. Um, beyond that, it's it's terrible. I mean, like, having your entire life subjected to the woke scolds, as I, as I term them, the yep, people who are yep. just out there to dig up every single thing that you ever did to try and humiliate you and shame you and make you feel bad about yourself. Like, it sounds really awful. And frankly, I have a great job right now. I get to speak ideas to people. And once you're in politics, like, let's say that you ran for president, you win. Okay, and then my sole job as president is to basically make my job irrelevant because I'm a small government person. So I want to see the government reduced in size, <laughs> right? My, my, my entire job is not to talk ideas anymore. My, now, my job is now to fire a bunch of people in the executive branch. And yourself, almost and yourself too. Right, like exactly. To get to, as small as, but yeah. I mean, this is, Rick Perry did not run a good campaign in 2012, but the one thing he said that I liked was he said, my job is to make Washington irrelevant in your lives. And I thought that sounds fantastic. I mean, you know mm-hmm. how nice it would be to wake up every morning and be like, who's president? Don't care. Okay, that, that, that'd be kind of nice, right? Mm. Because the truth is that that's really how life should work. You shouldn't care what some person 3,000 miles away is thinking about that morning like or what he's Eng- tweeting about. England got that way with the queen, partially, right? Yeah, it's just pretty, I mean, she's powerless too. I mean, yeah, there's, I there's mean, a prime minister, obviously. Right, but, of course. But yeah. I'm just saying like, they moved away from that model. I think- Well, this is one of the problems situation. in America. I'm, there, there's a case for, for a monarchy in America, mainly for ceremonial purposes, because the president has become a ceremonial monarch and yeah. the president should not be a ceremonial monarch. It's, it's ugly. I, I hate the state of the union address. For example, I think it's monarchic crap. He walks in and everybody's standing up and cheering. Yeah, He's the yeah. president and, and we play the music Horns. and it's like the big things like, that's not what the president was supposed to do. He's, yeah. he's literally there to command the army and the Navy and then sign bills and then execute the laws. He's not there to be the boss of America. Like every time I see any president, Trump, Obama, Bush, whenever I see them, there's like a hurricane and then there, there's a picture of them sitting behind the FEMA desk. And it's like, really? 
what are you, are you directing the resources? Is that what you're doing? Are you sitting there and you're moving all the pieces around like, like you're playing Stratego over here? Have you or seen you just Trump, sitting there in a FEMA cap? Have you seen Trump talk about category five hurricanes? Did you see that clip? Yeah, it, sure it, was it was real and it was spectacular. Yeah, yeah. of course. Like, the, he, he's got like, there's been like probably five category five hurricanes and each time one comes okay. out, he's like, we've never seen one. So Trump, <laughs> yeah. so like, there's all the, clips back to that. yeah, it's never, never been anything like it. It's unbelievable. <laughs> unprecedented. Category unbelievable. five. Right. We've never it, seen it before it's ever. The greatest. Like, here, here's the thing. It, it, one of the things that does drive me nuts about the media and the political debate right now is we all know what president Trump is. Like, are we going to keep pretending that we're shocked anew every time one of these things happens? I stopped. Like, we, we, stopped. we all stopped like, in this like, house. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah. the media, every time it's like, Chiron, breaking news. Trump says dumb things. It's like, oh, world ends. <laughs> oh, really? Is it a day ending and why? Like, like who cares? I was like, telling it, him last night about the time when he said he can go out on Fifth Ave and shoot somebody. <laughs> Literally. Right. And everybody was like, oh, my God, that's so terrible that he would say that. Okay, first of all, like, the man is basically a, a stand-up comedian. Yeah. Have you ever watched any of his, any of his rallies? He's not doing it like... This is why people are like, you know, if Obama said the same thing, you'd be really mad. I'd be like, right, because Obama is a politician who is intelligent and thinks through the things he says An before orator, he says them. Yeah. So if Barack Obama says a thing, I take it seriously. <laughs> For the same reason that when my wife says something, I take it pretty seriously. When my three-year-old says something, I don't take it seriously at all. <laughs> like, why, why, why would I pop, like, this idea that I have to take Trump with the same level of seriousness in what he says, as Barack Obama is asinine in the extreme. But, you but, would never do this in your but life. But does that tolerance... Uh, hurt us on a foreign scale and also does it hurt our the office of the president and does that matter so it's not good for the office of the presidency right i, I mean i do not like the lack of decorum in the office of the presidency i think that as i said earlier removing there's a, a friend of mine writes for the new york times actually and says that that removing all the guardrails from rhetoric is a bad thing and i, I kind of agree with that i mean the president is supposed to rhetorically uplift the country. And this is why when so many people on the right are like, but he's doing all these great things that you like. Why aren't you more pro-Trump? And I'm like, well, the president really has two jobs, right? Job number one is to do a bunch of stuff. And job number two is to speak in a way that moves the country in a particular direction. And that I think Trump just doesn't do. But when it comes to, you know, the foreign, the, the sort of foreign affairs kind of stuff, I, I honestly am a, I'm a foreign policy real politique guy in the sense that I think countries have their interests. They pursue those interests. I don't think what the president says has an extraordinary impact on mm -hmm. the interests of foreign countries. Like, I don't think if it did, then Trump's wheedling and, and kind of his needy stuff with Kim Jong-un would have stopped Kim Jong-un from firing off missiles. It doesn't, right? I mean, Trump is of the opinion that you can sort of kiss ass into people doing what you want them to do, mainly because I think a lot of people have actually done that to President Trump in the past, right? I mean, I think that people who are sycophantic to him do well by President Trump. And so he thinks, I'll extend that logic. I'll go be really, really nice to Kim Jong-un and then we'll be best friends. And that's why he tweets like this, right? He sent me a beautiful letter, unbelievable. And, and, <laughs> and it's like, well, no, Kim Jong-un's international interest did not change because he sent you a nice letter. He's an evil dictator who's keeping millions of people in a gulag and he has an interest in maintaining his power source by developing nuclear weapons and missiles. I mean, th 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 that has not changed just because you're nice to him. So, Or because Dennis Rodman goes Exactly, but, but, but by, the, by the same token, when Trump says about him, like, he's little rocket man, and people are like, oh my God, he called him little rocket man. It's, it's unbelievable. Okay, North Korea is not launching a nuclear war against the United States because Donald Trump said little rocket man. Are you sure? Because that am, dude seems am, a little fucking off, off hinge. I am 100% positive because there's one thing that Kim Jong-un wants, and it's not to be killed in a nuclear annihilation. <laughs> Right, that's literally yeah, yeah. the only thing he cares about. That's the only thing he will murder his relatives. He will he will anthrax he has, his relatives. Yeah, he will strap sure. people to anti-aircraft yep. guns. The one thing he wants is to maintain power, 
And there's a very surefire way not to maintain power, and that is you fire a nuclear weapon at, at, the, the, at the United States. Okay, Our military is not up for that. Yeah, to put it mildly, you say he straps people to anti-aircraft. He's done some he did that. Yeah, he shot. Or, he shot. He shot one of his negotiators. I think with an anti-aircraft gun. Yeah, oh he this dude's a fucking maniac. Dude. Yeah, he, he's the Shit. world's probably the world's worst human being. Yes, 20, wow. 20, 2020. Who has any chance? Because all right, and first of all, first of all, is there a chance against? Of course, Trump? of course, yeah, one hundred percent. Who is it? Biden is the best shot for them in a general. I don't <laughs> think he makes it through the primaries. So the best shot in a general. Let's say that you were a Democrat. The, so the, the goal in politics is to make it very hard for people to vote for your opponent and very easy for people to vote for you. So Joe Biden doesn't make it hard for people to vote for Trump, but Trump makes it very hard for people to vote for Trump. I mean, that's Trump's <laughs> right. unique gift is yeah. that the people who love him, love him. And the people who hate him, hate his guts and would walk over broken glass to vote against him and will commit voter fraud to vote against him. Yeah. That's not, it's not a thing. He's not, people are not committing widespread voter fraud. In any case, the, the, I have to make that comment for media matters. In any case, the, the fact that Trump, is always undercutting himself means that what the Democrats really should do is they should run a weekend at Bernie's campaign without Bernie Sanders, right? They should actually just wheel a corpse around and the corpse should actually just like not be animate in any way and just sits there. And then Donald Trump says something, plays shot music. of the corpse, back to Bernie's, uh, back, back to Donald Trump. And people are like, oh, that Trump guy, I can't stand that guy. But this corpse over here, he seems kind of nice, right? And, uh, but, and so you think of the Democratic candidates, which one is the closest to being a corpse? And you figure, okay, Joe Biden is kind of stumbling around out there. He doesn't seem totally with it. He's totally non-threatening, right? Nobody's looking at Joe Biden and being like, that guy is going to totally remake America. Like, does he even know where he is right now? Like, <laughs> so he's non-threatening. So that being the case, that's why he's clocking Trump in the early polls in a lot of the swing states. There's a poll today showing him up about nine points in Wisconsin yeah, yep, and national yep. polls, he's up like 12. Okay, now the other Democrats, it's a, it's a bit more dicey oh because God, if it's dude. a referendum on Donald Trump, who is very off-putting versus Kamala Harris, who is radical and also off-putting, or Elizabeth Warren, who is radical- and not quite as off-putting as Kamala Harris, but certainly pretty radical, then it becomes a lot more of a competitive race. All the Democrats, I've been saying this since the day Trump was elected. If Democrats want to win, all they have to do is one thing, not be crazy. That's it. That's the entire thing. And they can't do it. They can't do it. They do a seven-hour climate change town hall in which they declare that they're going to stop you from eating meat and they're going to ban plastic straws. Like, is that your path to victory, guys? Are you that do they think? Do they think that since Trump's path to success was going full, can't say it, going fucking nuts? <laughs> do you think that that? Do you think that that's inspiring them? Yo, well, we're gonna we're gonna fight fire with with fire in the primary. So in the primaries, yes. In the general, no. This is why this is the problem for Democrats right now. Is in the primaries. Let's say you're a Democratic primary voter. And if you're a Democratic primary voter, again, you despise Trump. You think that he's horrible for the country. You think that he has all the worst things. He's orange Hitler, the whole thing. And you're like, okay, who's going to clock that guy directly in the face? Who's going to get up there and just take it to him and be nasty to him and hurt him? And you look at the field and you're like, okay, well, Joe Biden is asleep. And all the, and all the other candidates seem well, how, like- Why is he bad? Why, when did he get like that? He, he wasn't was all, always so sleepy, was he? Uh, he sleepy Joe. It was, honestly, Trump, it is his gift. I mean, his, his gift- What do you think about him smelling girls' hair? Um, I think that it's weird, but I also don't think that it's anything like what the media have suggested that it is. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, like, I'm not going to pretend that Joe Biden hugging people too long is the same thing as Al Franken grabbing people by the ass or Donald Trump sexually harassing people allegedly, right? right like, I'm, right. I'm not going to pretend that right. it's, like, I, I think that that is people- trying to create a narrative about Biden. With, with, with that said, again, the, the election's actually going to be very simple. Is it a referendum on Trump or is it a referendum on the Democrats? If it's a referendum on Trump, he loses. If it's a referendum on the Democrats, they lose. 
The great lie of 2016 is it was a referendum on Trump and he won. So both the left and the right have bought into this and it's nonsense. 2016 was not a referendum on Donald Trump. It was a referendum on Hillary Clinton. For sure. Everybody thought that it was going to be about Trump is so toxic, he's so terrible, you can't vote for him, and that's why she'll definitely, definitely, definitely win. And then it turned out that it was actually a referendum on Hillary, and people weren't that into it. People didn't like Hillary. Donald Trump did not bring out vast swaths of millions of new voters or any of this. In Wisconsin, Donald Trump won fewer absolute votes than Mitt Romney did. Mitt Romney lost the state of Wisconsin. Donald Trump won the state of Wisconsin. Why? Because a lot of voters went missing for two reasons. One, they thought it was for sure Hillary was going to win. And two, they didn't like Hillary all that much. She was, was off that, putting was and that was, Comey story, was Comey's story the, the nail in the casket? Would it have gone a different way if that didn't happen? In, a, in an election where 80,000 votes in three swing states decide the entire election, it's hard to say that, that any one factor didn't decide the election, right? Yeah, you yeah. could say it was the Comey story. You could say that it was Hillary collapsing into a van a couple of weeks out from the election. I felt, right? could, I felt like that was minuscule. The Comey story to me was the, was the end all. Well, like, I, I, I feel like I think it just- it, Listen, I think that it definitely hurt her. It underscored suspicions that people had that she was corrupt because she has been a, an extraordinarily grasping politician since she first ended, entered the political scene. It underscored a lot of things about her. So yeah, I mean, the, the Comey thing definitely hurt her. I, I, I'm not going to pretend that, that it didn't or that, that without the Comey thing, Trump definitely wins because who the hell, again, he won the greatest outlier election in American history. He lost the popular vote by 2.5 million votes and then he won the electoral college by like 70 or 80 votes. Okay, that, that is a massive data outlier. So the, the, that means that basically any factor could have changed the election. I mean, it was, it was a very, very close election in, in, in those states. You have, uh, what, are, what are we doing here? I've I've had I've had this uh, asked to go to four hours. Is it, is it a Ben thing or is it a you thing? I need to know. It's a Ben thing. It's no one's thing. Because <laughs> the people watching this want us to go to tomorrow. Why are you saying no? I know ben, for no. fucking. Right. Well, do we do audio only now, Dylan? I'm confused. Well, do go do some fan questions. All right, let's do let's do some fan questions on audio only. Um, <laughs> You're stressing me out, dog. <laughs> You're freaking out, man. Uh, You're ben, freaking out. Ben, thank you, bro. Thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I appreciate yeah, of it. course, man. I wish I could have spoke more, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. I took it's, up all the time. No, no, it's it's kind of your thing, and I I, I enjoyed for listening sure, to you. Sure. Um, oh yeah, one quick question. Some people say you're uh, just. They, they, they say you're not a smart guy. You're just a really dumb guy who talks fast and uses big words. What do you say to those people? Do you even acknowledge that comment? What's the I metric, mean, by the way? I mean, are we doing metric by like IQ? Are no, we doing I don't know. I don't know. Just like, scores, just like, by, just like, like my like, educational background. I, I don't know. You have, you have, you know, you have haters. I, I think, and, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of critiques that can be made of me. I will say that like anyone else, I say the occasional dumb thing. And because I say more words, I probably say a lot of dumb things. Um, you know, the, the, I will say that, that for a lot of folks on the left, there's sort of a, a three pronged attack, right? You're either stupid or you're corrupt or you're evil. Hmm. So if the best thing to come up with is that I'm stupid, I can live with that. <laughs> I, just, I find it fascinating because like it's hard for me to listen to you and 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 find any any way that that sentence holds any truth to it because I mean you you are incredibly intelligent and uh articulate and yeah I want to thank you for coming on the show and blessing us with your presence well again thank you yeah. so much for having thank me you, brother. thank it. you brother where can they find you on the Instagram the Twitter the social media the toxic place <laughs> yeah I think it's official Ben Shapiro over at Instagram and it's Ben Shapiro over at Twitter and on Facebook you just look for Ben Shapiro and it'll come cool. up for you cool we're gonna do an audio only right now on Spotify and iTunes thank you for listening to Impulsive the number one podcast in the world we'll see you guys next time peace yo so to add on to your question a lot of people say you're a nut. 
Um, what kind of nut would you <laughs> say you are? <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, cashew, cashew. That's, that's classic. a solid nut, buddy. They won't drink cashew milk. <laughs> you also, you also said. By the way, we're still, we're still on. We do an audio oh, yeah, only. No worries. We've got a no, yeah, you can. Yeah, you don't have to worry about it. No cameras. Um, uh, you said they can look you up on Facebook and Twitter, and they'll find you. Is that for certain the case? Or is Facebook, Twitter, YouTube yeah, no. supporting? Uh, are I mean, they, have you been blackballed, blacklisted, blue balled? Not as far as not not not, <laughs> not 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 as far as I'm aware. Okay. I mean, I will say that I think Twitter is horribly run. So I think they've made some decisions that look politically motivated to me. Yeah. I can't complain about Facebook. We have great traffic on Facebook. I can't really complain about YouTube. I think we do well on YouTube. It would be ridiculous for me to complain about sources where we do well and suggest that we're victims there. What, what about your thoughts on uh, good old Alex Jones and his fight to... Alex Jones is a schmuck. I mean, I, I'm like... A, <laughs> dude's a moron and a schmuck. I mean, I, I don't know what to, to say about that. Like, I, I feel like I've been clear about this in the past. <laughs> All right, we have a, we have a question here from Frangu Christos. For Ben, has there ever been a moment where you have feared for your life through what you have said? And if so, has that changed the way you produce your thoughts now? Um, well, it's not that that's changed the way that I produce my thoughts. I hope that, like any other sentient human being, as I get to know more things and get older and shape my values, that that, that changes my thoughts. But fear has never really done it. Have I feared for my life? I mean, yeah, like four months ago, as I say, the FBI arrested a dude who was threatening to kill me and my family. We get a fair number of death threats as it is. In 2016, I was the number one target of white supremacists on the internet, according to the Anti-Defamation League. Um, Where I've never feared for my life, where people think I have, is like when I go on college campuses. Like, Mm. I'm the safest person there. The administration doesn't want anything happening to me. I'm surrounded by cops. Mm. I've got personal security at all times. That's not where where I'm fearful. I mean, where I'm fearful is really not even for me. It's for my family, right? Like, people coming to my house and doing something or something, which is why I own a shotgun and a handgun. And if they come, they'll get shot in the face. That's the way that works. Fuck yeah. Mm. You gonna aim for the face? Yeah, I mean, they may be wearing body armor. You, thought, you, well, you got some buckshot. You, you, aim, you aim center mass. I mean, I'm, I, I don't yeah, know that I'm, I don't know. I don't know that I'm proficient enough to aim for the face. But if I have two <laughs> shots, one for center mass, one for the head. Dude, imagine Shapiro just takes somebody out with one headshot. Just fucking yeah. sick for the brand. Yeah, by the way, dude. sick for the brand. Yeah. Um, I would, I, I would use uh, my bow. I think it'd be cool. We've talked about this. If someone breaks into my house, I'm going to shoot them in the face Good with my bow and arrow. Lock one shot. Where is arrow to the dome? First of all, that's hardcore. Where the fuck is it? Intense. Second of all, he can't, how he are can't, you going to maneuver that thing in a close bro, quarters? Don't give him that first secret. You're asking way too many questions uh, yeah. for the security. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do you how do you deal with haters in real life? Like you you uh, mentioned earlier, like you're holding your five year old and some some asshole come up and say something to you. How do you how do you deal with that? Honestly, you just got to disconnect, and it's very difficult. I mean, on a personal level, as a guy who is famous for not having feelings, I still have, I'm human. Yeah, of course, uh, and, of course. And so I've really had to disconnect in a lot of ways, and that's frankly annoying to me because I, I like connecting with people. I enjoy conversations. Mm. I like the back and forth. I even like mixing it up. But at a certain point, the juice becomes not worth the squeeze. Uh, that, that's been particularly true, as I say, on Twitter, where I've really minimized my sort of interactions uh, on Twitter. Uh, um, in, in person, you know, I, the, the first time it happened a, a few weeks ago, I mean, I always try to be cordial. I mean, that, that I really do. It's, it's funny. I have this reputation as this guy who's constantly brutalizing people and all the exchanges of me on the internet are me being fairly cordial with somebody yeah. and, and them just not liking my answer very much. But, um, you know, in person, I try to be cordial. The, the one, you know, if you get, there's not, there's never going to be any tape, I think of me doing like a Chris Cuomo getting up in somebody's face. It's not my personality. Yeah. It's much more likely that I'm just going to say, you know, you do you and then walk away. Um, but it's, you have to surround yourself with friends and family and build a bubble around yourself. And that's not pleasant. I mean, I, yeah. I don't like building bubbles around myself, but the fact is there's only a certain number of people that you can actually trust to have your best interest at heart. And a lot of people are not like that. How old are your kids? Uh, they are five and three. Have you had to explain to them yet 
what that person is who comes up to you and, and heckles you? Not like, yet. Okay. Not yet. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be rough a little bit, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they have an idea that people know who I am because when we're out in public, people want to take pictures. Uh, um, and I'm always, there are no pictures of my kids on the internet, nor will there ever be. Yeah. People people can take pictures with me. No problem. I love it. It's great. I'm glad you listen. With my kids, never, right? No no pictures of, of my kids. Um, but, you know, my, my, my daughter is beginning, I think. She's old enough. She's beginning to sort of get a sense that something is different about our household. Mm. So, like, the fact that we have 24-7 security. Mm, mm, like the, mm. the, the other day, she's very cute. The other day, she, she turned to me, and she was like, well, you know, if somebody tried to attack us, then our security would would stop them. And I said, right, that's, that's true. And she said, if they didn't <laughs> stop them, then I would go up in a tree with a rope, and I would tie it around them, and I would tie them up. And then I would come down, and I would hit them. Wow. And I said, you are badass with yeah that. like that's, that's, that's that seems that, like a that's solid great. strategy yeah, yeah i feel good. i feel like that's good and so i'm taking her to the gun range next week but <laughs> <laughs> she's four <laughs> do you do do you believe in gen z this is a question that everett wallace asked i don't know what that means okay so say, I, i've like, said before it that exists yeah. <laughs> yeah sorry yeah it exists. so i've said before that i really believe in gen z i believe they hustle i think they're going to be the generation to actually get shit done um and make and make change that we need no, do, I, do you think that yes okay. i mean i i do think that the millennials have, my generation, uh, have largely been affected by the failures of the baby boomers. And I think that what we're seeing now is a rebellion against a lot of the ideals that have been enacted by the millennials. Like, you, do you think this, this, this is a huge talking <laughs> point for LP? Do you think that the only uh, success for the baby boomers was adding wheels to suitcases? <laughs> I think it's pretty close to fair. I mean, like, I, I think that I think the baby boomers did more damage to this country than pretty much any Bro. generation in American history. The baby boomers were a disaster. I told area. you they were a disaster area. They don't get like it was. It was really old, Americans slightly older than that who were responsible for the civil rights movement. And and you know, I was I, I'm anti the 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 Vietnam War peace movement that dis, that, that disparaged our troops and basically lost a war politically that had already been won militarily. So I, I'm, I'm struggling for like what the baby boomers did right, considering they wrecked an entire generation of people with their own selfishness and stupidity. So yeah, no, I, I think that the, <laughs> I, I'm harsher about the baby boomers than, than pretty much anyone else. Now, again, there are many great baby boomers. I love a lot of baby boomers, but you know, I think that it's weird that we we cannot seem to escape the baby boomers in these presidential races, right? Like mm. we've got Bernie, mm -hmm. who who is from the forties, and we got Trump, who's from the forties. We got Biden, who's from the forties. We got Elizabeth Warren, who's seventy years old. Like yeah, at some point, yeah, at good? some point, give up the ghost guys and just move on. Like, well, do you think it's that, or do you think it's it's the lack of of presentation? Like, are we failing to show up on the from the millennials? Yeah, because know? we have a disproportionate population aging. I mean, the, the, there are a lot of baby boomers. They're called the baby boomers because there are so many of them, right? And and millennials will be the largest voting block in the next election cycle, but that's a new thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, normally that would have happened a little bit earlier. Yeah. You and Mike are actually only one year it's apart crazy in to age. Imagine. And I, I can't really wrap my head around that. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm 30, Did you know I'm that? 30, I'm 34. He's th are you still 35? 35, yeah. yeah. What? Uh, I mean, what's going on here, man? <laughs> Life is weird, man. Life, and, and he's obviously more uh, representative of what 34 or 35 should look like. I think, I think, I guess we have this, we have this conversation a lot of times around societal norms and expectations based on, you know, the past. And I think it almost comes down to the fence conversation. Once again, you, you are the fence in this situation. Yeah, I, and I think right. you probably were placed there in a more better way than my lack of fence. Let's put it that way. Like, I don't know how else to put it. I'm, I'm moving. I'm, I'm aging a little bit slower. <laughs> That's okay. A, yeah. You know what? As my father says, it, it ain't about where you're standing. It's about which direction you're moving. Fact. Oh, fact. There we go. I, listen, I had you a, got hope. I had a, I had a, I had some some obstacles to overcome. Absolutely. So it's, again, it's yeah. about the direction you're moving. For sure. You move in the right For direction. Sure. You're you're 
doing what you're supposed to do. Because you can't change where you are right now, right. except by moving in the right directions. Right. That's it. Right, right. Your first book, Brainwashed, How Universities Indoctrinate <laughs> America's Youth. Mm. Quick little synopsis. How do they? Well, I mean, there are a couple of ways that, that America's universities are, are biased to the left. I mean, obviously, the vast majority of professors, particularly in the non-sciences, uh, are Democrats and are of the left. And this is true across the United States, with, with very few exceptions. There are a couple of ways that they can affect how students think. One is through selection bias, like what they choose to teach about. And the other is how they teach about the stuff they choose to teach about. So if you are in a class and your professor is only assigning a certain type of economics, but not another type of economics, you never see the, the counter argument. On the other, uh, uh, the other form is if, if the professor is teaching about the other form of economics, but the way it's done is disparaging or dismissive, then obviously that's going to shape how you think. Mm. And, you know, I think that what's happened on college campuses, because it's basically a one-party town, everybody seems to assume that their opinions are facts. And this drives me a little bit up a wall. Like I really do try, I think you've heard in the conversation, I try to separate out what is my opinion from what is the fact so that you can assess the fact on its own and then come to a different conclusion if you want to. I think a lot of professors don't really try to do that. They sort of mix the two up. It's funny. I actually just got a note from a a, a British guy in the room who's sitting over there on the left. And it's, it's it's from Reddit. I, what were your thoughts on Reddit, first of all, briefly? I haven't spent too much time on Reddit, okay. to be honest with you. I've done Here, a couple of Q&As. Here's but. what r slash murdered by words, you slash Zakesamint thinks of you four, <laughs> four hours ago. He got one award for this and 743 up arrows. By the way, I have no idea what any of the fuck okay. that, any of that right. means. Uh, a perfect de- definition of Ben Shapiro. He's literally a 35-year-old man who goes to college campuses and argues with kids half his age to make himself look like a genius. Then when he's backed into a corner during an interview with another full-grown adult, he gets mad and storms out. Lol, they have an LL mm-hmm. in there. He's a perfect picture of millennial conservatism, a movement pr- predicated on the belief that appearing correct is more importantly than actually saying things that are true. I've always thought of you as a, a, a factually based debater. I mean, I hope so. So the, 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 they're referencing a specific interview that I did with okay, the BBC. Okay. Uh, and I've done probably thousands of I interviews. I saw this. Um, okay. yeah. yeah. So I've done yeah. thousands of interviews. I've debated many people who are not college students, ranging from Sam Harris on atheism to Chank Iger on healthcare. Uh, I've debated Piers Morgan on guns. Of course, I've debated, I've debated Morgan, a, yeah. a wide variety of people yeah. who are not college students, and you know, Sally Cohn on on, on immigration. Like well, this happens fairly. So frequently. let's forget that part. But so, the storm, so, but, so the storm out, right? So so that interview. Basically, what happened is that I was booked for a book interview. The interviewer proceeded to ask me zero questions about the books, right. and then do the routine where he was going to read my old tweets at me to suggest that I was a bad person. I actually stuck around on that interview for, I think, 16 and a half minutes. I was, I was wondering, wondering why you stuck around for so long. Yeah, I thought I mean, you gave that, him a lot more time. I mean, I, I, gave, I gave the dude 16 and a half minutes. Have, have, what you, you see is the, is the BBC clipping the last minute and a half where I just say, like, I'm done. Like, this is not useful. And honestly, I don't feel bad about walking out. My big mistake, so there were a couple of mistakes I made in that interview. The, the mistake that I made, number one, is I didn't know who was interviewing me. I literally had no idea who this guy was. And apparently his shtick is to be really adversarial and confrontational. So I assumed that he was being adversarial and confrontational because he was politically disagreeing with me, not because that was his shtick. Yeah. And so I said that, and that was incorrect. And I immediately apologized for that on Twitter because you get it wrong, you get it wrong, right? Uh, and then the second thing that I did was I assumed that because I had no idea who he was, that he was not a person of prominence. He was a person of prominence. I apologized for that too, right? So I'm not sure beyond that, like, I don't feel it's my obligation to stick around while somebody reads my old tweets at me and then yeah. refuses to allow me to explain them. I don't feel like it's my obligation to stick around an interview when somebody's sole goal is apparently to assault my character. And so me getting up, taking off a mic and walking off, I fail to see how that amounts to quote unquote storming out when confronted by arguments. That was me saying, I'm not going to be insulted 
and derided and taken out of context repeatedly for nearly 20 minutes and just continue this indefinitely. So, so if you want to, if you want to read it that way, listen, you can, yeah. you can read it any way you want. Yep. It made a lot of people feel better because obviously my reputation was Ben Shapiro destroys. <laughs> and here I was walking out of an interview. The and grim so was, reaper of the debate world. <laughs> right, exactly. And so there was a lot of people being like, well, then he got destroyed. And it's like, okay, fine. If that's what you want to think, you can think that. But, but yeah, you've clearly reached a level of prominence where you shouldn't be expected to have to fucking deal with, with some hit piece or, or some maniac that wants to just come and I have, I, I'm the only person I know in public life who has a running list of all the things I think I've ever said wrong. Okay, I have one on the, on the internet. It's on the Daily Wire. It's called, here's a list of all the dumb things I've ever said. You can find it. It's got hundreds of thousands of hits. Do you it's think, got old Trump, tweets do you me, think me there's a server it. that would support Trump's list? Um, <laughs> that, is a, that is a difficult question. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, to, to be fair, I, I think that most politicians would have a rough time compiling yeah. such a list. Have you walked out of interviews before? Uh, yes, there was one, only one. Uh, and that was an interview where it was very similar. Uh, it was with an interviewer, it was about, one of my early books in which somebody started asking me about my masturbation habits. And I was like, this is a waste of my mm, time and I'm out. Mm, mm. And so like, whenever I feel like it's a waste of time, I don't actually believe I have an obligation to finish a bad faith interview. And I said that in the interview, right? I said, this is bad faith. I'm out. Yeah. And people were very into the whole like Shapiro destroyed. So yeah, totally. Yeah, listen, but now I that, get it. I, I totally get it. I get yeah. the brand. Now I that get you the say branding. you're sorry, right? Yeah. I mean, you got to say it again. You're, you're, you're are you sorry? Because yeah, you're bad, man. For, for, for what? <laughs> <laughs> Full circle. That took a second. <laughs> All right, man. I think that's it. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, brother. That was fun, man. Thank you so much. Of course. Ben Shapiro, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Peace.